Episode 123, recorded Monday the 21st of January 2013, Deadwood. Twenty thirteen is officially the year of TV. I spent most of twenty twelve slavishly watching and reappraising movies that I was very familiar with for Gonzo Planet. I pretty much exhausted myself on superheroes, wizards, and space marines. So this year, I've turned a good deal of my attention to some of the finest TV in my collection and out of it, for that matter. Game of Thrones season two will follow the release of the DVD in March, just before season three airs. Battlestar Galactica will have four shows spread out over the first half of this year. TV comedy is also likely, with Community, Arrested Development and The Office all being superb shows that warrant discussion. And joining me for this particular trip into filthy, dangerous, strange places are... Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello there. Gary Blower of Game Burst. Howdy. And Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Good evening. Mighty courteous of you all to turn up. Deadwood may stand at the very tippity top of the heap, being a flagship example of how HBO's independent pay-per-view approach can directly benefit the production of superb and unusual risky TV. Created by David Milch, whose other credits include L.A. Law, Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue and Murder One, among many others, according to Wikipedia, Milch has pointed out repeatedly in interviews that the intent of the show was to study the way that civilization comes together from chaos by organizing itself around symbols. In Deadwood, the main symbol is gold. Although the series touches on a variety of issues including race, prostitution, misogyny, violence, politics and immigration, most of the major storylines are grounded in this issue of bringing order from chaos. On a personal note, I found that one of the most recurring themes to be that of the struggle for control, either of oneself or of others, and occasionally both. Running for three series and 26 episodes between 2004 and 2006, this was a show that would make or break a new viewer's determination to consume every last scrap of it within the first 45 minutes. It is a savage and foul depiction of life in the Old West based on historical accounts of events in Deadwood, South Dakota from 1876 to 1877. The language is so blue that within hours you're inured to it, absorbed into the narrative and the Shakespearean dialogue which flows with brutal elegance 
from every mouth. It is a performance piece, a character piece, and a dense, interwoven series of power plays that is nonetheless easy to follow if you're paying attention. It is grim and violent with stomach-churning murder in hot and cold blood. It deals with shades of grey characters at every point in the monochromatic spectrum. People who start off hateful or stupid, crazy or selfish will surprise you down the line with their human behaviours. Performance is handled subtly, with much emotion being hidden or unspoken, unexplained or hinted at, making most characters a complex puzzle to unwind if you can. It's also incredibly funny at times, with much dry humour mined from the exasperation of those trying to remain professional at the mercy of those that are unable to be so. Most nourishing of all is that amid the darkness, often when things are at their most nihilistic, we are offered up a tiny shaft of sunlight, a drop of kindness from unexpected sources, innocence being allowed to prosper in the most corrupt place imaginable. It's these moments of sincerity that keep you from becoming as jaded as the worst of the characters. It is the most compelling and compulsive, perfectly handled, swiftly consumed, lengthily digested, acerbic, surprising and honest historical drama I have ever had the immense pleasure of absorbing. The short of it is that you should stop listening to this podcast right now and go order the entire series. At less than £21 in the UK and with various options available in the US, I can give you a solid gold guarantee that if you like one or more of the following, you will find yourself in good company. Game of Thrones. The Wire, Breaking Bad, Red Dead Redemption, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Gangs of New York, There Will Be Blood, Tombstone, and The Wild Bunch. If any of you folks want to add any to that list. If you I wish- think it compares well to the West Wing in terms of dialogue. I, do you know what? One of the things that struck me when I first watched it, I didn't realise at the time that David Milch did Hill Street Blues. It reminded me of Hill Street Blues, which oh, is yeah. weird. So, yeah, you can definitely see the structural similarities. If you wish to carry on listening, we are going to be holding a mostly spoiler-free discussion about Season 1. We will do this by discussing 21 of the characters, one in turn, and the part they hold in proceedings. Don't get too hung up on spoilers. What happens can often be read in the history books. What's more fascinating is how people deal with these events, and that is not something we can spoil. So... If you listen, you will find out key things that do happen in this series. When I say spoiler-free, I mean it won't spoil your enjoyment of Deadwood. There's almost no way we can spoil your enjoyment of Deadwood. The only way you could possibly spoil your enjoyment of Deadwood is to watch it when you're in the wrong mood. If you first start watching it and you're impatient, and especially if you are uh, offended by harsh language, it's (laughs) it's not your show. In terms of language. Actually, I've got a little thing here on language from uh, Wikipedia again. From its debut, Deadwood has drawn attention for its extensive profanity. It is a deliberate anachronism on the part of the creator with a twofold intent. Milch has explained in several interviews that the characters were originally intended to use period slang and swear words. Such words, however, were basically heavy on the era's deeply religious roots and tended to be more blasphemous than scatological. Instead of being shockingly crude, in keeping with the tone of frontier mining camps, the results sounded downright comical. As one commentator put it, if you put words like Goldarn into the mouths of the characters in Deadwood, they'd all end up sounding like Yosemite Sam. Instead, it was decided that the show would use current profanity in order for the words to have the same impact on modern audiences as the blasphemous ones did back in the 1870s. In early episodes, the character of Mr. Wu excessively uses cocksucker, his favourite derogatory term for those whom he dislikes. 
Wu is also fond of the Cantonese derogatory term guaila, which he applies to the camp's white males. The other intent in regards to the frequency of the swearing was to signal to the audience the lawlessness of the camp in much the same way that the original inhabitants used to show that they were living outside the bounds of a civil society. The issues of the authenticity of Deadwood's dialogue has even been alluded to in the show itself. Early in the second season, E.B. Farnham has fleeced Mr. Walcott of $9,900, and Farnham tries to console the geologist. Some ancient Italian maxim fits our situation, whose particulars escape me. Is the gist that I'm shit out of luck? Did they speak that way back then? The word fuck was said 43 times in the first hour of the show. It has been reported that the series has a total count of 2,980 fucks and an average of 1.56 utterances of fuck per minute of footage. Goddamn, goddamn, fuck, fucking cocksucker! Fucking fuck 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 fucking fuck 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 the thing is, though, it's not senseless swearing. It's not like a bullet storm or something like that where they're just swearing for the sake of it. It is integrated into the dialogue in a very Shakespearean way. Mm. For example, my one of my favourite lines, speak now or prepare for eternal fucking silence. <laughs> it's brilliantly handled. I also like the one that I put on Twitter there. Uh, I think Al says something along the lines of he's having a conversation with EB regarding the mathematics of fleecing someone out of a certain percentage. And Al angrily retorts, I trust you to know that 2% of nothing is still fucking nothing. There is a skill to which the language is handled. It's also correctly, correctly used. I mean, this is the first thing I think I've seen on television or film where the word cunt is used correctly. Mm. Um, I, People may have heard me mention this before, but I mean that's that was a common term in British English around the turn of the century and, and even before that. And there were actually lots of streets and roads in in Britain that were called Cunt Lane, which is where prostitutes would you know where the main sort of prostitution site within that town would be. I mean, the famous there's a famous one in Bath, um, and most of them were renamed to be Love Lane. Um, I know that there's a uh, part of the last century Grape Street in London that used to be called Grope Street. Yes, that's the other one. Yeah. Yes. So it's 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 a term that um, often today has is is often you know a lot of people are frightened of saying the word and and it's often considered to be the the, the worst swear word. But actually, funnily enough, it was one that was regularly used as a kind of adjective uh, until sort of maybe about a hundred years ago, and that's when it became taboo. Before that, it was quite commonly used, and this is one of the first things I've seen that actually use it correctly. You know. I understand that they they deliberately used a lot of British and and um, Irish swear words, mm. um, as a, as you said, as opposed to you know the kind of parlance that would have been made at the time. But t- rather than going back into you know taking go back into American history, they went back into British and Irish history and took took words from that period that were, are now considered to be offensive. Hence, fuck and cunt. Al uses the term uh, collectively to describe the uh, commodity in the sex trade. As in, yes. men, men who come here looking for cunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, get the cunts working, yeah. That, yeah. But, but uh, that's where it comes from. It, it was a word for a prostitute, so it's, it's where it comes from. Notably, Bill Hickok, I think he's the person who actually uses it the first time in the show. I could be wrong, fact-check me on this. Um, but he uses it to very violently shout the term at Jack McCall. Mm. Um I don't know if he's the first. He's certainly the most um, 
he uses it in the most abusive way, yeah. I think, at mm. the, certainly up to that point. But that has a lot to do with the way it's delivered. Mm. It's, you know, it's specifically explicit and specifically abusive, but that's in terms of sort of tone of voice and um, context. Hmm. Many of the 21 characters I have on this list before me are based on real historical figures present in Deadwood, 1876, and their depiction in this show varies from records from person to person. That gives a feeling of heightened fact with the drama. Nothing should be taken as wholly accurate, but there is a much likely truth found within, and often recorded events are used to shape the reactions and personalities of the characters that we see here. A lot of these guys are based on real people, but there was only sketchy accounts of them, and in some cases they actually deliberately go against the accounts of them for, uh, for drama. So, shall we start with Seth Bullock? I would start with Wild Bill Hitchcock, because really? he is Hitchcock. the most famous Hitchcock. He's the most famous character. I mm. mean, the Wild Bill show is... Was was very famous and is and is that you know the story of Wild Bill is featured in a number of feature films as well. Okay. Some of the- well, yeah. So I've, I've got a specific order here. However, it can be broken up, and I'll just I will I'll lead us on to sort of Bill's circle from Bill, if that's okay. Sure. I mean, he's the he's the reason that Deadwood became famous. Yeah. Because it's the place where obviously he got killed playing cards. I mean, he's the that's game, a major uh, spoiler, but ultimately we can't <laughs> again, talk it's about also this a matter of historical record. <laughs> yeah, and anyone who's seen any western, you know, they use the wild Bill Hick- Hickcock cliche in virtually every western from about 1935 onwards. So, but yeah, I mean, the fact that he was shot in the back playing cards, and and you know, his hands became famously known as the dead man's hand. You know, that's the that's the where. Deadwood got its infamy, and, and mm. you know why Deadwood remains a uh, the American version of Bath. Funnily enough, today you know it's this sort of historic town that apes back to a different era. What happened in Bath apart from it having a spa? <laughs> well, Bath. A lot of people. Go, most tourists who come to Britain go to Bath. It's the second most visited place, and it's because it's got both the Roman history and the Georgian history, and it's it's kind of it still looks as it always has done. It wasn't badly bombed during the war for example so that's one of the reasons people gravitate there and dead was the same it still has that that look about it it's been you know it's largely been preserved i think there's probably strict rules about building there you could probably find out on wikipedia but if you look at pictures of deadwood today it looks pretty much the same as it would have done around this time less mud i'd hope well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's poetic license in the TV series, but yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and you, if you look at pictures of, um, talk about later, but some of the the premises that will feature in the TV series, if you look at photos of them, they do look very, very similar. You know, they've done, they've really done well to sort of capture the the look and feel of the place. But then when you see those places now, some of them aren't there because a lot of them were burned down. But yeah. if you see that the ones that that do remain, they look very, very similar to how they did. At that point in time, the, I do know that the Grand Central Hotel, uh, which features repeatedly throughout the show, was actually built after the events depicted in the show by Seth Bullock, mm. and that's actually still going today. It's a casino as well. It's a casino, yeah, yeah, I've read that one as well. I also know that the uh, uh, murder of Wild Bill Hickok and the subsequent hanging of Jack McCall is apparently reenacted there every summer evening, which is a bit macabre. <laughs> <laughs> Every yeah. summer evening or every midsummer evening? It says apparently every summer evening. Well, everyone has to have a hobby and somebody. <laughs> apparently so, yes. A lynching every night for three months of the year. May I ask, ma'am, when you'd expect to leave the camp? I'm not certain. Bullock is honourable, Mrs. Garrett. You can trust him to see to your interests. 
But he couldn't come more highly recommended. You know the sound of thunder, don't you, Mrs. Garrett? Uh, of course. Your husband and me had this talk. And I told him to head home to avoid a dark result. But I didn't say it in thunder. Ma'am. Listen to the thunder. So, yeah, carry on on Hickok. The story of his life and his demise has become the basis of, of most Western cliches, you know, Western movie cliches of the 20th century. So it's quite key that they... You know, that they hinged the entire series, what well, the, the opening of the series around him. And even though, you know, I, I knew, you know, I, I, this is the first time I watched Edward. Um, you know, I got, got it just after Christmas. But as soon as I saw that he was in it, I, I knew exactly. It was like I was counting down for when it was going to happen, yeah. you know. And I think thematically, it should really have happened in the very first episode because I, I believe he died like within a day or two of arriving in Deadwood. Second day of uh, Seth Bullock and yep, him arriving in Deadwood, where they just yeah. they happened to arrive on the same day from different directions yeah there you go and i I know that um i'm trying to think uh of the film i'm actually just looking now at the list of films that feature wild bill so you got um there was a film called wild bill with jeff bridges i'm just going back through them there's one in 80 77 70 63 56 53 what's that one that you found josh with um uh calamity jane doing a sing song by doris day that it's, is Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's play that song now, because for the love of God, it is the polar opposite of Deadwood. Introducing Henry Miller. Just as busy as a busy sarsaparilla. And a showman, any smarter, operates the Golden Garter, where the cream of Deadwood City come to dine. Say he's a very good friend of mine. Here's the man the sheriff watches. On his gun, there's more than 27 notches. On the draw, there's no one faster, and you're flirting with disaster when Bill Hickok's reputation you malign. And I'm glad to say he's a very good friend of a friend of mine. Shut the fuck up! And his gun, there's more than 27 nudges. She's talking about Wild Bill. She, Henry Miller was Cy Tulliver. Yeah, Just to God. jump forwards a little bit. Um, Powers Booth. Uh, yeah, Tom Miller uh, was uh, known in the in that Calamity Jane uh, film as Henry Miller, and he was the uh, impresario of the Bella Union. So, yeah, that's Cy Tulliver. So he's going, ah, Calamity Jane, yeah, in that bit of um, wonderful Golden Age Hollywood Arcana. So the one, the film I think I, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but I saw a film from the 60s and 70s. It might have been one called The White Buffalo, which had Charles Bronson, but I don't remember him playing Wild Bill, but it may have been, because it's ages since I've seen it. But like I said, because I remembered that, I knew I knew that he was going to die within the first few minutes. Um, Here's a gambling chip. Go buy yourself breakfast. And I thought uh, Keith Carradine really, really nailed it, you Absolutely. know, in terms of the, his performance. It's super. And also, didn't Keith Carradine... Star with Powers Booth in, um, uh, not Deliverance, the other Tombstone? one. Tombstone? Southern Comfort. Oh, right. Um, I believe they were both in Southern Comfort. Anyway, we love that. He later. was in, uh, Dexter. Um, you might remember this one. Uh, I, I, do you watch Dexter, Gary? No. Okay. Josh, you might remember this one. He was, yeah. um, the FBI agent. The FBI agent, yeah. I've forgotten his name, even though I told Lundy. you. Lundy. 
Yeah, I mentioned that earlier, who uh, Deb gets a uh, relationship with. Yep. Keith Carradine and Powers Booth were, were the leading stars in Southern Comfort. I thought they were. So there we go. If you've not seen that film, it's a superb film. Um, Walter Hill film from 1973. Very so, yeah. similar to Deliverance, if you've seen it. But anyway, off topic. <laughs> Hickok is portrayed in Deadwood as a man who appears to be looking for a way to die. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's become fed up with his lot. Mm. He's supposed to be prospecting. He's supposed he's got a wife waiting for him to to you know send her her word so that that she can move into Deadwood with him. But he just he seems to not so much take unnecessary risks, but he's not the least bit careful when it comes to um, keeping the peace. Back cover my call. Oh, Bill, I can't let you put your gun up. That Colt's worth more than my raise by a good forty bucks. Are you taking the bet? I tell you what. I'll add 40 bucks to my raise. Make the bet fair. And then 50 more if you'll put up a set. Hot to the club flush. Well, that's one in a row for you, Wild Bill. Who's hungry? What the hell damn time is it anyway? Sure you want to quit playing, Jack? The game's always between you and getting called a cunt. Meeting's adjourned, fellas. Take it outside. When you talk, your mouth looks like a cunt moving. I ain't gonna get in no gunfight with you, Hickok. But you will run your cunt mouth at me. And I will take it to play poker. He, he realizes that he's succumbed to his vice, which is which is obviously gambling. Yeah. And that he he can't see any way out of it. You know, I, you're given you're given the impression that. Um, you know they've almost brought him to Deadwood to try to 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 get him out of his gambling habit because it's you know he's lo- he's just he's got no money he's got a family to support and this is his last chance really to try and straighten himself out but as soon as he arrives there he just descends back into what he's always done which is drinking staying up all night and playing cards and, yeah. and he's 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 all he's, you'd almost say he's a he's 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 depressive you know he's oh, definitely, he can't yeah. cope with it just cannot cope with it anymore sleeping out in the hallway. Um, even though he was doing it as a courtesy, is yeah, he just has this um, air of a man who's not comfortable anywhere. One thing I really like about the way uh, Bill's portrayed in this, though, is that his his character is shown by the people around him. It's not in what he does that you see his quality, because what he does, as you say, is turn up, drink, gamble, and stay up all night. Mm. But in the fact that Charlie has masses of respect for him and wants him to get better and get a better life, Jane admires him beyond all reason. Um, and Seth, who who we do see is, is quite sort of an honourable person, takes to him immediately. Mm. So that's sort of, it's, it's the reflections that give you the... Um, the impression that you're you're supposed to get of him. Mm. There had to be um, there had to be a certain amount of reverence, obviously, in their depiction of him because uh, he would be the one of the main guys that historical um, specialists would jump on them if they portrayed him in an ill light. That said, they still don't hold him up as like the godlike figure that I think Hollywood has in uh, mm. in the past. He's but still he a very anyone else in Deadwood if he, if they did. Yeah. 
True. No, I, all I mean is that, yes, they have made sure that they have portrayed him in a good light, but he is still very much a flawed human being, much like everyone else in the show. They're not trying to sacrifice reality just so some people who worship this historical figure feel happy. Yeah. He shows in relief what the rest of Deadwood is like, though, because, the again, the implication is that this man who is a, a gambler and an outlaw is one of the most decent people here. I wouldn't say outlaw. I mean, he was a he was a lawman. He was a um, he a was marsh. a white earth type figure. Yeah, he was a marshal and a sheriff. So he, he came he came with a reputation for being a fairly ruthless lawman. I mean, to be honest with you, lawmen in that, in that sort of era were just as bad as the outlaws themselves. You mm. know, but um, I think he grounds the series. I mean, that's that's the key thing. I mean. It, sort of coming in at the beginning like that it, it sets the tone for what to expect but it also grounds the series in reality so it's it kind of says you know this is going to be a semi-historical piece it's not going to be pure fiction and we're going to start off with the character that most people would probably recognize or or may have heard of mm. and then from that we'll then weaving all these other characters who were around at that time you know like seth bullock and the like um in and around that and so in and around him I mean, he he really becomes, you know, the kind of bedrock on which that first season is then built. Yes, uh, so much um, of the actual drama for the first eight episodes stems from his uh, arrival in Deadwood and then his subsequent murder. Yeah, and the fall, yeah, the fallout from it. So the fallout from the murder then has ramifications on yeah. how everything else, you know, the turn of events that then take place. Well, the, the trial of Jack McCall uh, brings Yankton into it, which obviously then yes. uh, ends up with impacting on the end of the series. There's a fantastic piece of music called uh, Igatsu by Gustavo Santaola, which plays just off Jack McCall uh, shoots him and then runs out into the street in slow motion and everyone in Deadwood realizes what's just gone on. And it's, there's, there's a certain amount of reverence for this particular moment.
is not lost as to you know how this impacts on these various people and um, Bullock saw a lot of himself in uh, Hickok the link being that they were both marshals in their previous lives this is something that Bullock has come to Deadwood to effectively escape but it's the this murder of a friend of his that reinstalls his that he's never going to be able to get away from trying to bring people like this to justice. I think it's more what what hits him is the realization that basically if he doesn't do this, if he doesn't take this um, the action that is necessary, no bugger else is going to. Yeah, uh, it, this is a career high by far and away for Timothy Oliphant, who has been in some rubbish films before. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he, he can, he somehow manages to rein in. I uh, think he always either over or underperforms. You ever notice that? You, if you've ever had the most fortune of watching him in Hitman, he does both. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that, but I'm Don't. quite intrigued now. I it's, mean, the only thing I've seen him in is, is Die Hard. So that was my only. Oh, God, I forgot he was in Die Hard four pointless. I thought he was I okay. He does... okay in that. He does do both a little bit in Go as well, although yeah. admittedly that's a very small part. But in that, the overacting, you get the impression is deliberate. That's how, you know, how Todd characterises himself. He also is perfectly cast in The Girl Next Door as a uh, a, an older guy who's very threatening and intimidating and unusual to, uh, the, you know, the young high school kid, Matthew Kidman. I, I always get the sense with Timothy that he's an actor who's great when given a good script and a yeah. director and he needs a guiding hand but when he's on his own and the materials maybe not at the same standard then he you know he wavers a bit there is a certain amount of being able to lean on the smolder in this though because he's got that moustache and uh, beard uh, van dyke combo and those extremely piercing eyes so all he has to really do is walk into a scene and look intensely at someone and you're like wow what a presence Although that is mitigated nicely whenever he's doing a scene with um, Sol. Because whenever he tries that, Sol just looks at him in this way as if to say, what's up your backside? <laughs> yeah, he just raises an eyebrow, doesn't he? <laughs> exactly, yeah. A brief they, explanation they play off for, each other very well. A brief explanation for folks who are just finding out about this. Uh, well, Bill Hickok, um, I think we pretty much explained who that was. Uh, Seth Bullock is a ex marshal who's come to Deadwood. His partner, Soulstar, is a Jewish businessman who he is making a, a go at uh, of making a hardware store. And Sol experiences quite a lot of uh, racism uh, the second he steps into camp, um, specifically from Al Swearingen, who never lets him forget that he's Jewish. I was going to say, he doesn't get a massive amount of discrimination from everyone else. But Al manages to lay it on thick and fast every time they're around each other. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. I'd like to make an offer on that lot we're renting. Sell my back teeth for the right money. 600 get the job done? I guess before I made a price, I want to know if you boys have unnamed partners. Why? I think specifically Wild Bill Hickok. Didn't you and Hickok act together in the street this morning? We just met Wild Bill Hickok. What business of that is his? You mean what business of mine is that? Don't tell me what the fuck I mean. Not a tone to get a deal done. Can we sort it out another time? Thirsty people coming. Sure. Yeah, and you and me will find our proper stride, huh? All right. 
Good luck on the day's trade. Well, I won't wish you luck, because I can tell you ain't the type that needs it. Salt Star, right? That's a Jewish name. Mine isn't, but nice to meet you, son, huh? Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Marked you for Nerner the minute you come in my sight. Jew bastard. But, uh, yeah, he's played by John Hawkes, who was in, actually, a, he was in From Dust Till Dawn. Totally overacting as oh Pete Bottoms. Oh my god, of course. And, and in this, Good he's drink. so much more reined in. It's, he's, he's unrecognized. And attractive. Yeah. <laughs> it's the lack of spitting into a cup that does it, I think. It's because he's one of the gentle few in Deadwood. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've read this, but I read on IMDb that because um, John Hawkes himself isn't Jewish, and when he went to the to audition for the part, obviously David Milch is. Um, they, he said to him, you know, I'm, I'm auditioning for this part, but obviously I'm not Jewish. And David Milch said to him, "Have you ever felt downtrodden and depressed?" And he said, "Well, yeah, of course." He goes, "Well, you're Jewish." <laughs> <laughs> Seth Bullock, I think we all know, was a real life character. Uh, do you believe Soul Star was also a real guy, or did they make him up? No, he's real. Yep, he is absolutely real. The Al Swearingen we just mentioned before is someone we can't really not talk about for much longer. Uh, we've been half an hour and haven't really <laughs> mentioned the guy. Uh, it's Ian McShane, who you'll have heard probably the second thing you'll have heard about Deadwood after the swearing is Ian McShane giving his chuck some superlatives. My Tour de force. Tour de force. <laughs> Anyone else? Josh, you've been very quiet. Uh, one of the best performances I've ever seen in anything. Um, <laughs> like, I know that sounds really extreme to anyone who hasn't seen Deadwood, but anyone who has de- seen Deadwood, not- I think, would agree with me. Yeah. Um, it, like, the best description I've ever heard, and this is coming from Charlie Brooker, okay. is that Ian McShane's performance is hypnotic. The moment he steps on screen, he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to be doing anything particularly interesting. Your eyes are drawn to him. He just instantly becomes the most interesting thing on screen. Aging Pete's my stream. No fucking fear of you. Get in here. All in due fucking course, but tell me one thing first, Bullock, as I stand here fucking humble. Does the widow Garrett have a going fucking hard rock concern in five-stamp mill? Crushing gold out of her quartz all day and fucking night. What? But does she cast her lot with the camp, furnish others here a chance to develop what they got to hang on or even prosper? You pie-faced cocksucker. Get in here and account for your insult. Or, with you at her ear, among other points of entry, instead of doing her civic duty, does she ship her fucking loot to Denver? Civic duty. Opposed by her own and her dead husband's family, too. Put her assets at play in a camp with no law or government worth the name. Seems here where she lives and struck lucky civic duty yet. And it's time for her and some others to quit their fucking shirking. Yankton's making its move. Ah, fucking thing. Meaning what? Yankton's making its move without more insults. We're getting ass fucked. Carved into counters. Not one fucking commissioner coming from the hills. How do you have this information? From the governor himself in a pricey little personal note. They want to make us a trough for Yankton snouts and them hoople heads out there. They need buttressing against going over to those cocksuckers. Now, I can handle my areas, but there's dimensions and fucking angles I'm not expert at. You would be if you'd sheathe your prick long enough. Shut up. And resume being the upright pain in the balls that graced us all that summer. Shut up, you son of a bitch. How does one describe Al Swearingen to an outsider? Because all they'll know is the moustache and the face and the fact that he's Lovejoy. 
unless they're of a certain young age, in which case they won't know who Lovejoy is. He, Ty Lung, he, maybe. Well, it, the short answer is a pimp, but the long answer is he's a he's basically a manipulative entrepreneur, front, frontiersman, businessman. Yeah, who's basically trying to trying to make as much money as possible by whichever way he can, um, but who also has uh, a side to him that sees the much bigger picture, which often escapes everybody else. And so, yes. for that reason, he becomes the pinnacle figure within the town. And this is, this is, this is actually what happened as well. This is, this is the real character was, mm. you know, the real, the real man was very similar. Um, and he was a very good political manipulator of, um, both the people in the town and those that tried to, you know, stake their claim or to manipulate the town itself. And I believe he was one of the first people to form the camp as well. It's him, and the fella that owns the ten bar, whose name I cannot remember. Is it Tom? Tom, yeah. So those are the two, basically. That that I know they're both barmen, but you know, both got bars. But they they were one of the first two or three that actually formed the camp, I believe. And so he's very defensive, you know, around the camp and and people trying to muscle in on what he perceives to be, you know, his little empire. This is this is this is the pl- this is the place where he's going to make his fortune. Mm. One of the things I love about Al, and I find him incredibly fascinating to watch, everything he says, everything he does, adds another layer, or at least another facet, onto his character. Every sentence that comes out of his mouth, almost, you learn something else about him that you didn't know before he said it. Something I mentioned when we were discussing why Al... Uh, asked Seth to become sheriff at the end of the series. Again, this is not really spoiling much because it's an ongoing thing. Um, but why would he ask someone who has almost become his nemesis in the town to be the sheriff? What makes him different from Cy Tolliver? What makes him almost a father figure to the town? Because even though he is, has never met a problem he couldn't stab, Al Swearingen does understand the need for a balance. He would rather have a sheriff that he can estimate on and work out roughly what they're going to do so an honorable man who will see justice done than a man who can be bought off with a can of bacon grease and will only be asking for bribes and will allow chaos to flourish again this is the uh, being able to establish any kind of order from chaos yeah well that's key what he what he didn't want was was uh you know a sheriff that was going to you know, blackmail him and try to manipulate him. Yeah. He wanted someone who, like you said, he knew, he would know where he was coming from. He wanted someone who, who, who felt they were holier than holy, you know, yeah. who felt that they were the... Yeah, holiness. Yeah, exactly. God forbid E.B. Farnham wear a star. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he knew, he, yeah, which is why he's, you know, he, he supported him as being sheriff and even though he, seems odd it makes perfect sense and because it, it gives someone the power to actually take him down yeah and it like i said he sees the bigger picture he's i mean the reason he's successful and to all intents and purposes i think the reason that the the real al shrigan was successful was that he he was incredibly smart mm. uh, and on all though in this he often comes across as like a as being a bigoted loudmouth. he's just so switched on that doesn't mean exactly he's also good. smart exactly um, and well, in fact, that's, that's, that's part of his defence mechanism. Mm. He's sort of hiding behind that. Speaking of hiding, my absolute favourite Al episode is the one where he first starts to get a real feel for the Reverend's condition. 
and it starts to really wear at him in a way he never explains. But when he takes it out on the uh, uh, the girl and just you know trying desperately to exert control because this is one thing he cannot have any control over. It bothers him on such a fundamental level. It just peels away the layers of Al, but then he snarls into the camera rather than giving us anything. It's fantastic. Point is, this minister's going to fucking die. I mean, that's the that's the fucking point. He's going to die sooner or later. I mean, he's making a fucking jerk of himself. And, I mean, well, why, why go on with that? Who, who's who's going to benefit from that, huh? No, you just gotta kill it and put an end to it. You, you don't linger on about it. You don't fucking go around weeping about it. And you don't, you don't behave like a kid with a sore fucking thumb. You know, look, go sucking it. No, my poor fucking thumb. I mean, you, you gotta behave like a grown fucking man. You gotta shut the fuck up. Don't be sorry. Don't look fucking back because, believe me, no one gives a fuck. You understand? Yeah. Shut the fuck up, huh? Give me that. I always get the sense with Al that he wants to appear heartless and evil in the minds of other people, despite the fact that he actually isn't. Because when he, um, because he's got this, uh, a gimp, I forget the name of the Jewel. 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 Um, who he's hired to be his cleaner. And he's abusive and mean to her all the time, but I get the sense that he's just doing that for everyone else's sake. He actually brought her into his establishment because he saw somebody who needed help. He's not completely heartless. He does have a soul somewhere in there. He's got a great line for her, and he says he only keeps her on in case a miner comes in there with just nine cents. <laughs> 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 it does make me laugh. It's, it's, it's mentioned a couple of times. It does make me laugh. But um, there's a bit of backstory, isn't there? Because I, I can't remember whether they reveal this in later seasons. But she was with... Because he grew up in a brothel. He was an orphan. And I believe she was somebody he brought with him from there. He kind of... She was being abused and smacked around and stuff. And he brought her with him. So she's been with him some time. She, she often shows him affection through slagging him off and calling him every under the sun as well so it's it's a it's it's quite clear that their relationship is very strong which is why they're able to talk to each other in such rotten ways i do like jewel she's um she is one of those uh, characters who's not based on a real life uh, character she is no. there to uh, uh if anything uh, give extra characterization to al uh, mm. but uh, she's played by an actress named jerry jewel so it would appear she's named after her or it's just an alarming coincidence. There's a brilliant bit in series two. This isn't really a, a spoiler, but Jewel, who you've been kind of going, yeah, you know, she's actually a well-rounded, handicapped character, says something really racist uh, yes. about one of the black characters. And you're like, she's got an edge to her as well, and she can also be a complete bigger to, uh, as well so you know it's 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 a way of giving even more layers to someone who's there's no one in this who's any one thing or even really any two things just that these characters are you know appear to have a, a backstory and a history so that you you know that when you know you're the camera's not on them they're also doing other things which is very unusual for a show usually you, you just everything seems like a giant setup and everyone's on a set you know well, I, while we're on that topic, I, I just need to compliment the writing in this show. I think, honestly, it is possibly the best written show 
I've ever seen. Not my favourite, but just the quality of the dialogue and, as you said, the characterization is kind of unmatched. I, I can't really think of anything where the conversations flow mm. as well as it does in this show. It well, is riveting. That's what Hill Street Blues was very famous for, which is why when I first started watching it, I thought well, it really reminds me of Hill Street Blues, the way that, you know, all the characters were interacting with each other and how it was very sort of multi-layered and there was, you know, lots and lots of things were going on at, the, at once, but not necessarily central to the plot. And that was very, very much like that. I mean, it's probably quite horribly dated now, but it was, it was, it had a similar structure to that and it had, you know, and famously had very sort of zippy, New York, New York slang based dialogue, um, much like this does, really. So that yeah, was, um, sorry, that that was something that struck me about watching it this time round as well. That that there is all this stuff going on that isn't necessarily central plot, um, and is it, sometimes you can watch an entire episode and it almost seems like nothing very much happens. But that's right. not what it's about. It's about the way people are. Uh, interacting with each other and, and treating each other and, you know, the, the exchanges of small talk sometimes tell you so much about the individual people. It's framed in an interesting uh, way time-wise as well. Every episode starts in the morning of a day and finishes in the evening of the day. Sometimes they play around with that, but by and large, um, we've, we've been sort of watching occasional episodes in two sections, Sharon, and it's actually really great fun to wake up in the morning and wake up with Deadwood and then, you know, Al's drinking coffee and stalking around the bar, snarling at people coming in the door. And then uh, last thing at night before you go to bed, you watch what happened in the evening in Deadwood. And it's it, it just there's that sense of time passing. And um, it's got an identity in that respect. Like each um, series is 12 episodes long and takes place roughly over two weeks. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, I think the first season, though, just to, to go on with Josh Durant, is some of the finest television I think I've I've seen. Um, I'd, I'd say the only thing for me that probably beats it was the first season of Twin Peaks, but it's it's so tight, it's so pacey, it's so well structured. The narrative is is strong and consistent throughout. It's it really is it really is a superb piece of television. Mm. Um, I know we're not going to talk about the other seasons today but i do feel that it does start to drift and fade away quite considerably um in in some of the subsequent seasons not you know to diminish them at all but the first season is so beautifully structured throughout you know it's um i mean just talking about seth bullock i mean really the, the whole first season is is almost setting him up i mean even the, the very opening of the very first episode features him being hounded out of uh, the previous town where he was a sheriff and really that kind of it, it the whole first season really is his story of going to Deadwood, finding out what the place is like, meeting uh, Wild Bill, all these other things that go on through to him ultimately then becoming sheriff at the end of the season. So um I think some of the later seasons don't quite have that strong narrative uh consistent three seasons throughout, but this first season was just superb, you know, in 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 that respect. I actually, I still think that the second and third series are incredible and electric, but you are right in terms of the fact that in this first season they had a remit and they had a story to tell over yeah. a two week period. It never feels like it's meandering, whereas yeah, the other yeah, ones yeah. do. They, they have highs and lows and they, it kind of goes up and down, but they, and they have a, they have an ending, but, but the first season is just tight all the way through. You always are, you cannot wait to watch the next one. Mm. You know, you never, you never feel like you end an episode, um, thinking, oh, oh well that was good. 
that wasn't as good as the previous week. Every single one is bang on the money. Um, whereas, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to maintain that consistency for over, you know, whatever it is, 30 odd shows, you know, so. 36. Uh, yeah, 36. But, but over the 12, I mean, they obviously set out to, to make that 12 from the beginning and no doubt they spent a lot of time you know, deciding what characters they're going to have and how they're going to interweave them. And for that reason, it's just it's perfection. Al's main concern, I mean, I don't think he wants people to see him as evil. I can't remember who it was. Was it you, Gary, said about him uh, appearing sort of quite... Oh, Josh, sorry. Um, about him being cold-hearted and evil, or at least seeming that way. But I don't think he does. He's very hard-headed and he is very practical. But ultimately, he wants whatever will keep the money flowing towards him. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that involves taking a longer view of things, like what happens with um, uh, the the gold claim when he tries to buy it back, and and um, when he finds out there is actually gold on it, you know, he ups the bid, and he's you know quite happy to go to to pay in twenty grand to to get it back. When it becomes apparent that that's not going to be that easy or straightforward, he does some very quick calculations and works out that it's actually in his best interest to let that go, um, which isn't something that you would almost expect him him to do. Um, whereas I think if you compare him to the way that Cy behaves, he's interest is in money obviously and he wants the Bella Union to do well and you know it, everything's all about um, where his his interests lie but he's very much more concerned about his image than Al is mm. um, and also he is mean and manipulative and extremely cruel oh, yeah. in a way that Al is not well, Sai well, is actually sadistic. He actually mm. takes pleasure in the pain he inflicts, whereas I don't think Al does. He just does it as a necessity mm. for uh, maintaining his empire. Them chinks ain't pulling, Mr. T. Even had a dime a fuck. What's been your approach? Cost, primarily. Uh, inexpensiveness. The dime. I'd go with the strange, this boy. Take it head on. Turn it to your fucking advantage. Uh, among humans for grip, a China woman snatches no peer. In all nature, the python is its only rival, though few have lived to tell the tale. We are dwarfs in the company of a giant. I won't fuck Chinese. I got a mother living yet. See the jealous type? Yeah, you ever hear, Tom, the Chinese whore has an ancient way of milking you your sorrow, your loneliness, and that awful feeling of being forsaken. Seems to me I'd leave you with nothing. They both exert control, but Sai actually seems straight out psychopathic. Like, he will do something that doesn't have any reasoning behind it other than a, a selfish need to be paid attention to. This Sai is played by Powers Booth, and I've never seen him play a cuddly, nice chap. He's always <laughs> uh, just, you know, he's on this scale of evil, and I think Sai is way down the bottom slash top, depending on which direction it's going. I definitely need to see Southern Comfort, because he's, he's not that. Is he not evil in that? 
Right. Okay. No, he's I, the he's I, the main hero. He's the he's the kind of lead. Star. God, that would be so weird. Would. He's got this mouth that makes it look like he chews off human ears. Well, he is a soldier, <laughs> so he is like that. But yeah. Okay. But he's he's one of my favourite. Well, he, he yeah he is one of my favourite actors. Although I, I oh I kind yeah, of the performance is on fire. He's incredible. Yeah, in a, particularly in the first season. Again, I think in later seasons it goes. He just sort of descends into <laughs> mumbling, <laughs> but. <laughs> But the first season, yeah, he's on fire. He's he's superb. Yeah. Um, the guy just looks evil. I know that's kind of a, a you know a superficial thing to say, but he is just appears. He looks like a shark. Yeah. His appearance is, and I, you were saying he him playing a hero in in another film, but I, I can't yeah. I can't imagine. You wouldn't that. trust well, him, in, would you? Yeah, just a little just... interesting connection between those two films. And Walter Hill, who made. Um, Southern Cover. He was the director of the opening episode of Deadwood as well. Right. So there is this, there is this sort of interrelationship between, and and he's used Powers Booth in a number of his films. So yeah, oh, he, he's a fantastic actor, and I wish he was in more things. To be honest, um, based on his work in Deadwood, I'm surprised he isn't involved in more projects. But I haven't, I haven't really seen him in much. He got typecast. <laughs> yeah, because no one else can see him as a cuddly hero type either. Um, Sai is the upmarket version of Al. Uh, I think that there's a great exchange between them where Sai says something on the lines of, you know, the Bella Union is where people come in off the street and they can leave the world behind and indulge in the finer things in life. And then Al says curtly, meaning I get the girls who don't wash. It's like he just blows into town and there's these sort of, you know, uh, what, what, are, what are referred to as strange, um, implying, you know, unusual girls that you can have sex with, just on his cart sort of waving to the inhabitants. And Al's just sort of going, right, there goes my business down the tube. Okay, right, I'm going to have to be offering half price tonight just to compete with this. Yeah, because to compete with that, what you want to make your girls look is even more cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think they possibly... We got cheaper and grottier. You know, perfect for degenerate tit lickers. <laughs> the bit with the EB's prudishness regarding that man is hilarious. Yeah, so Sai, the uh, purveyor of illusion in Deadwood, he allows people to feel that there is somewhere that's closer to heaven than it is to hell, whereas the opposite is true the second you step out the door. But he has a relationship with the uh, madame, the the the, um, the hostess of uh, the Bella Union, which is really quite distressing. Uh, she's uh, a young lady named Joni Stubbs, played by Kim Dickens. Again, phenomenal performance from her. Uh, and she is a kept woman. She is under control. I kind of want to hand this one over to Sharon because yeah, there's some. They're in a minority, but the female performances in this all mean something. And Joni is is most definitely this. Can I can I hand this one to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think they are in a minority, and that's one of the reasons why I love this show so much. If you look at the um, the, the women in this show, or the, the well, the females, because I would include Sophia in this as well, the little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got, because um, you've got Joni, uh, you've got Trixie, um, who is sort of the... the Head hooker, I suppose, at the gem at Al's joint. There's six in case you're going to count, Sharon, and there's 24 characters on this list, so uh, that's a minority. It's a quarter. Okay, all right. Well, if you've missed any, I'll let you know. Sure. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, Joni is a very elegant 
person. She's, you know, she's very much about the the fancy dresses and the, um, you know, the makeup and the the elegant looks in a way that none of the girls at um, at the gem are. Um, but it's it it's what it's all pasted over. She's incredibly fragile, incredibly vulnerable. She's she, when you find out more about her history, she's been quite badly abused throughout her life, and Sai has basically taken advantage of that in order to manipulate her. Um, and is effectively holding her as physically and mentally hostage. Yeah, he bought her. I mean, he bought her and most. He bought of her, her from her dad, didn't he? Mm. But she's another of the characters that's not based on any specific real life uh, figure, but there most likely was someone like this at the Bella Union. But it's a it's a very abusive relationship that they have, um, and he has this this sort of weird sense of control over her. One of the things that that I did notice watching the, the show you can there's parallels between many of the characters and they kind of offer a, a a relief to each other so you can you know you can see the direct comparisons between say Seth and Bill and each of those comparisons tells you a little bit more about the other person you've got Al and Sai you've got Joni and Trixie um, and then a little bit later on we'll talk about um, Alma and Jane as well Joni's vulnerabilities and uh, her her desperation to find some control in her life is kind of flipped in Trixie who seems to reject any opportunity for control that gets given to her but you kind of feel that she, she it, that's because she has it she actually does feel like she's got some semblance of control Trixie for the folks at home uh, is Al's head girl considerably lower down the uh, uh, the glamour ladder than um, Joni but Joni tries to give some motherly sense to the, the girls who work at the Bella Union as well. She's very nurturing of them. Um, and she talks later on about having sisters as well. So that, I, I guess, comes from that. She's trying to express what she's lost in her childhood with the situation that she gets given. Just so that it's not a brutish man charging around the place, shoving the girls out the door, in the door, and just, just so that there is a conduit between uh, Sai and the rest of the girls. Indeed. Which is what a madame is for, ultimately. Mm. She's also... I don't know if it's... I don't think it's ever really explicitly confirmed whether or not she is gay. I know... Um, what's her name? Flora refers to her as a dyke, but I She's mean, that's... definitely bisexual. She definitely is. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. On our way from Syracuse to Indiana so my daddy could try farming, my mama got cholera and died. He didn't make any better a farmer than a millinery clerk, but he had a way enough with words to get me believing that my mama in heaven wanted me to see to his needs. And then to add to the egg money by seeing to the men he brought. And she wanted me talking my sisters into seeing to his needs and then to the men. Till he sold me to Cy Tolliver. If he was here, I'd wish a beating mornings and evenings on my daddy, like your pa took today. <laughs> her being trapped by Cy comes to a head at a point where Cy has murdered two people in front of her, and she is torn apart by this ordeal, and tells him to kill her or let her go, or she's going to kill him. How does he respond to this? It's 
Oh, it's really weird because I think he gives her his blessing to go and find a new establishment. Well, he says he's gonna. He says he's gonna back her. He's well, gonna pay for her to have her own place, but that's totally not what she wants. She wants to be free of him. Yeah. She wants to be free yeah. of his not money. The money is to control her still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. He, he, He's he's saying that he's freeing her, but in reality, he's just giving her a looser leash. Mm. Still owns her. But yeah. at the same at the same time, though, it seems um, a little bit self defeating that she is basically still asking for his permission to go. The implication yeah. is still that she will not go until he says it's okay. Yeah. But but what she's asking is for him to mean that it's okay for her to go and for her not to be under his control anymore, and he will never say that, and she knows that. Well, also she's terrified of him and knows that he's the sort of person who would kill her if she left without saying that she was going to, and then was caught. Hmm. Indeed, and that, I mean that the, the whole setup with the the two um, uh, young con people, um, the whole point behind that. As he it, basically he tells Eddie that he did it to try and manipulate Joni, and he tells Joni that he did it to try and manipulate Eddie, which kind of emphasises what a bag of you can say shit. What a bag of shit he is. <laughs> you secured that building, honey. When? November. Got the building in November. I guess you'll be operating out, huh? I'd have thought. A trick would have been behind it, but Joni's fucked money. He's been going for jewels. How long we had that understanding, honey? Since I was 14. I've been giving Joni jewels for her fuck money since she was 14 years of age. And not once did I come out ahead. Anyways. Anyways. Since November, it looked to me the project lay fallow, but I guess it was just terminating. Should we talk in private, Cy? Would that be rude? Not at all. I mean, an uh, 18-year relationship between me and Joni, just one moment alone? Of course not. Suck some pricks, if you like. Keep whatever they give you, is my way of saying welcome. Any blind ones out there? <laughs> Across the street, you have the Grand Central Hotel, presided over in this reality by E.B. Farnham played by William Sanderson, one of the most Shakespearean characters in this entire thing. He is a fool. He is a complete imbecile, as venal and as self-important as he is conniving and stupid, and seems to say everything he thinks in too many words, not dissimilar, actually, to A.W. Merrick, played by Jeffrey Jones, editor of The Deadwood Pioneer, who is even more pompous than E.B. Uh, But because Al has most of his dealings with E.B., using him kind of as a a, a slightly less threatening conduit with the rest of the town, so uh, he actually uses E.B. in the beginning to actually attain a a plot of land. Well, sorry, to sell a plot of land. Um, Al is unfortunately at the mercy of E.B.'s idiocy. And there's a lot of comedy and um, plot mined from the fact that Al, unfortunately, had slim pickings when it came to um, people he could be in cahoots with in Deadwood. Yeah, I think, like I probably said earlier, I mean, his main allies, you know, beyond those within his... Al's main allies, beyond those in his actual employ are Merrick and the um, fellow who owns the number 10, whose name has escaped me yet again. Who was it again? Tom. No, not Tom. Yeah, it was Tom, wasn't it? Tom Nuttall. Tom Nuttall, that's it. Those are the people who 
who he has respect for, although Merrick he does manipulate and bully like he does everyone else. Whereas he has he, no respect for it. He has no respect. Well, the thing, with, the thing with Merrick is an intellectual, whereas Farnham is just an idiot who's trying to make himself sound like an intellectual. Yeah, and and, and he's, he's he's trying to make himself look more bumped up and important than he really is, which yeah. is in line with his character then becoming mayor and walking and you know dressing like a dandy and 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 everything. He has like lace it. cuffs, which yeah. are ridiculous <laughs> in Deadwood. Everything's covered in mud. Yeah. He's, is that not dissimilar to Tobias in um, uh, Arrested Development? Methinks a Cupid I shall play. He is, is that same sense of like completely oblivious talking to himself, you know, like, you know, th- things are looking up for E.B. Farnham. It, it, Isn't there a, a line where he, he goes to show off his new coat and he says something, I think it's Ali's talking to it, he says something like, what do you think this coat says about me? And Al says it means you need to find a new fucking tailor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's very interested in what other people think of him. He has somehow come upon a minor sniff of power and the ability to hold a certain amount of water in this town, despite the fact that everyone seems to consider him as a joke. But they all seem to tolerate him. Well, he's the perfect figurehead, really, the perfect puppet. You can dress him up and stick him out front for everybody to look at and say, oh, well, he's got the right coat and he's got the right hat and he's usually using roughly the right language. But he doesn't actually have the backbone to cause any trouble for anyone True, yeah. off his own opinion. Well, you know, other than, he will do what he's told. Other than trying to diddle them out of a certain percentage. Yeah, well, yeah and also he, he does he is a bit of a, he is a snitch so anything anyone tells him he will then tell somebody else yeah. who will sell information for money and stuff which mm. gets him into trouble. But. but ultimately I think the way he behaves is so blatantly obvious that unless you are completely stupid you know you can always trust EB to be yeah. EB. I was just yeah, about to exactly. say that to paraphrase Sam Jackson and Jackie Brown. <laughs> He's reliably incompetent. He's never, he's never not going to disappoint you. True. I want to know who did that legwork. You hit the nail square, Al. Whoever went between them Bella Union people and Artie Simpson would be a prime source of information. Do not repeat back to me what I just said in different fucking words. Oh, I hate to press you on the lot, Mr. Swearinger. Wouldn't that be a setup? If they're all of the same fucking party. You think them hardware guys and Hickok might be the advanced party for them saloon operators, Al? You just did the same fucking thing I told you not to. Excuse me, gentlemen. Um, forgive me for interrupting your repast. I'm E.B. Farnham, mayor and hotelier. And I know you are George Hurst. Yes. Allow me a moment's silence, Mr. Hurst. Sir... I am having a digestive crisis and must focus on suppressing its expression. Right, uh, another majorly important character uh, who operates uh, in Deadwood, at least for the first half of the series, um, is of, the, of this first season, that is, uh, is um, Martha Jane Canary, or Calamity Jane, uh, played by uh, Robin Weigart. Another incredible performance... With such, I don't know how to, to bluster and just confused emotion just pouring out of this tortured soul. She's very, very blunt. And has clearly been raised in, a, in an environment where she has to, you know, to try to be on the same level as, as, as the rest of a lot of very filthy men. 
and has lost any semblance of what it is to be a woman. That's Very. if she ever had it. I, the one thing about Jane that strikes me is that all the, the bluster and the over-the-top drunken swagger all seems very, very natural to her. She's got to have grown up that way. It is suggested in season one, never directly, uh, but it seems that she suffered from some kind of child abuse when she was uh, much younger because of the, w- the way she dotes on the child early on the way uh, the way she's so protective of her he she draws a gun on the doctor just because she doesn't want him to be alone with that that girl and when um uh al walks into the doctor's um home and you know threatens to harm the little girl she starts saying do it to me if you have to as if he doesn't threaten to harm her he just walks in and basically yeah. says like well, what are you going to do it just walks past her and she's like get the fuck out of here but she's terrified of him this is like the first or maybe second episode that's where you realize that al has the ability to steamroller over weak people. Scared people. Scared people. He can push people aside if they present no direct threat to him. If they pose a direct threat to him, he can stab them. And if they pose a direct threat to him and stabbing them would be a bad idea, he can threaten them. But that's pretty much the only ways he deals with people. And this, the, the ease with which he breezes straight past her it is incredibly powerful. And the effect that has on her, she just becomes a wreck. I didn't get the impression personally that early on that there was that it was the result of, of abuse in her childhood that made her react that way. But I would say certainly being possibly orphaned at a very young age or, or being left without her family, that seems to be what about Sophia's situation strikes the biggest chord with her. Yeah. Um, although she does say something later on about having... Well, the implication is that at some point in her life she had sex with a lot of men. I'm guessing if she grew up as the only girl with a lot of ranch hands or, you know, herders or something like that, that's possibly where that's come from. She does say to Charlie later on, I don't think it's the same episode, I think it's a couple of episodes on, where she says, I've never been that scared since I was a little girl. Mm. Which says to me something happened when she was a kid. It may not have been child like sexual abuse, but something ha- horrible happened. Right, I've been reading up while we've been talking about it on her uh, childhood, and when she was uh, she was born in uh, 1852, and uh, then her parents Robert and Charlotte and their six children moved from Missouri to Virginia City in Montana. Her mother died in 1866 of washtub pneumonia. So Jane would have been 14. And then she had to then tend to the farm, 40 acres of land, which was being uh, presided over just by her father, who died the year after. So Jane had to, at the age of 15, take over as head of a family of five other girls. Sorry, two brothers and three sisters. Uh, she worked as a dishwasher, a cook, a waitress, a dance hall girl, a nurse, and an ox team driver. And in 1874, two years before this began, at Deadwood in 76, she found work as a scout at Fort Russell. During this time period, Jane also began her on and off employment as a prostitute at the Fort Laramie Three Mile Hog Ranch. There you go. There you go. What do you want? Doc asked me to see your patient. What for? What do you know about it? Who the fuck are you? Don't 
Don't you fucking ignore me! You don't want to interfere with me. You think I'm scared of you? Sure you are. If I take a knife to you, you'll be scared worse than a long time dying. I ain't scared to die. I ain't scared of nobody. Get away. Get away from her. Leave. Leave. Leave that little one alone. Leave her alone. He's a fucking first. I've been fucked plenty. And tougher fucks than he was. And littler than her about plenty. They fucked me plenty so you can go fuck yourself. Go on, Hannah. I'll look after Um, The casting of, of the show is interesting because um, I, th- I think I mentioned to you guys on Twitter that a lot of the characters are cast a lot older. So, um, for example, um, Ian McShane was in his, I think, early 60s, yeah. mid-60s when this was where, but the actual character at this point in his life was only about 30. Yeah. And that's true for a lot of them. Um, E.B. Farnham as well is cast a lot older. While Bill Hitchcock, Hitchcock, he was only in his early 30s. And again, Keith Carradine is probably about 60-odd. Charlie Utter is another one we haven't mentioned yet. He's cast much older than he was. Um, and with Jane, they they portray her as, as this kind of drunken tomboy. Um, yeah. Whereas if you've, you know, okay, you've got these hilarious portrayals of Clanty Jane in other Hollywood films, but she was... She did dress as a woman. She wasn't. Uh, she wasn't dressed as this kind of frontiersman scout um, during this period. You know, she was actually in Deadwood before Wild Bill got there. Um, so the, you know, they, they they did play in terms of you know the, the the visual portrayal of of Deadwood and the way they wanted the characters to look. They did take quite a lot of liberties compared to you know what the reality was. But they, but the, you know, in terms of her character in the show. <laughs> The way she dresses and the way she acts is key, um, even though it may not actually bear much resemblance to the, to the real person. Is it possible? It says apparently um, uh, by this time, shortly thereafter, this is in the historical bit, her youthful mm. good looks were gone, her skin was leathery and tan from the sun, and she was muscular and unfeminine, and her hair was stringy and seldom washed. Yeah. Sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, but she wasn't uh, She wasn't dressed as a, as a man. Whereas she did when she was Custer's scout. That's how that was her attire then. But okay. by the time she was in Deadwood, she was back wearing dresses again. And, gotcha. You know, okay. But, but she yeah. may have looked old and rubbery. <laughs> rubbery, leathery, or you, you name but, it. I mean, she's in, got a texture. In this though, they have a you know often with with vomit and dirt stuck to her face, and yeah, you know, <laughs> she's pretty grim. 
yeah, she was resident in Deadwoods gotcha. for some time. They obviously that they Charlie had to run that business for some time before Wild Bill moved there. Mm. You know, so. her um, near obsession with Hickok though is accurate. The, yes. the there was a, a very strong sense of infatuation there. A calamity Jane claimed to have been married to Hickok, and that Hickok was the father of her child, Jean, who she said was born on September twenty fifth, eighteen seventy three. That would have been before she met him, and whom she later put up for adoption by Jim O'Neill and his wife. No records are known to exist, which proved the child, the birth of the child, and the romantic slant of the relationship might have been a fabrication. During the period that the alleged child was born, she was working as a scout for the army. At the time of his death, Hickok was newly married to Agnes Lake Thatcher. So, yeah, this this is again another one of those major historical figures. They, they kind of had to be a little bit careful with how they portrayed. They didn't, they didn't want to go too far in one direction. Exactly. And, and as you know, she's featured to, you know, in many a Hollywood film in the 40s and 50s, and with your little example of the song earlier as well. Yeah. Also in late 1876, Jane nursed the victims of a smallpox epidemic in the Deadwood area. So if you, if you read through that period, it's actually pretty accurate. It's just the, uh, there's some, there's a few things that are a bit hazy that they could probably have played a little bit fast and loose with. Yeah. The, um, liberties that they've taken with the ages, it, that actually kind of makes sense if you think of it in terms of, um, the standing that people would have reached within society by a much younger age at that time. Um, similar to the way in Game of Thrones, they age all the kids up so that what's actually going on with them socially makes more sense to a, an audience who would probably shrink quite horribly at the idea of a 13-year-old being married off, but they can handle it with a 16, 17-year-old. It's it's a visual thing as well. You want yeah. you know you want people to look old and wizened and grisly, yeah. um, to, to to fit in with the character. I mean, you which know, in those days they probably would at thirty five odd. Yes, yeah. It was most certainly in in the West, yeah, in the, in the kind of wild west, but less so in New York, which yes. is probably why the New Yorkers do appear to be a lot younger. Again, mm. the reason for doing that. Buried at, uh, in 1903, she died eventually. Buried at Mount Moriah Cemetery, South Dakota, next to Wild Bill Hickok. Four of the men who planned her funeral, Albert Malta, Frank Ackney, Jim Carson, and Anson Higby, later stated that since Wild Bill Hickok had absolutely no use for Jane while he was alive, they decided to play a posthumous joke on Wild Bill Hickok by giving Calamity an eternal resting place by his side. And I believe, uh, Seth Bullock ended up buried in that same plot. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, a wholeness to that. Now that Deadwood exists, the uh, the TV show, it's, it's it's kind of a heritage thing. I'm sure there's a, there are some sort of you know uh, people who live in Deadwood and have a, you know very strong ties to their heritage hate the show for the, the liberties that it takes. Yeah, maybe, but uh, it's probably also made the place even more famous than it was Absolutely, before. Yeah, puts it on the map. I'm probably getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but in the later series where you've got Hurst, I mean, he's the Father of Citizen uh, Kane himself, yeah, Randolph Hearst, yeah. So there's a there's a whole load of things connecting Deadwood to the rest of you know U.S. history and media, you know. Yeah. And, and Hearst went on to be a bloody congressman, you know. And if you see how he's portrayed in the later seasons of uh, Deadwood, then it's quite horrifying. Yes. But Jane herself is actually frequently the uh, source of uh, humour in the show. It's that it's kind of it's dryly funny to watch her flail about, swearing and angry at everyone. Or it's th- there's a bit where she um, 
she's given leave to stop tending to the folks with smallpox and she goes out into the street, gets drunk and leans her head against the wall in an alley in full view of the rest of the street. And then every time someone comes along to her and just expresses uh, concern for her and her well-being, she swears at them and tells them to fuck off. You know, if she really wanted to be left alone, there are plenty of more private places to go. With the exception of Bill Hickok, it seems like she takes everyone's comments as an attack on her. Yeah. Even even when it's you know completely harmless, like uh, the doctor asks her like some perfectly innocent questions, and she starts like, w- "What do you mean? Are you implying that I like to drink a lot? Yes. Well, I do actually like to drink. Thank <laughs> you for asking." And it's that's just- the poshest way of saying you plan I like to drink a lot. Well, fucking you, right? I like to drink a lot. That's, she's just a spitfire the whole time. Yeah. Usually I'd find that really horrible to watch, but for some reason with Jane, I just feel concerned. Well, you pity her, that's the thing. Like, you want her to have a better life, because... You want her to calm down. Despite her um, very aggressive nature, she clearly does have, more so than most of the characters in the show, a soul. Like, when she cares for... I forget the name of the character who gets... Sophia? Just... Oh. Uh, no, catches smallpox in the woods. Andy. Um, Andy. Andy. Um, she cares for that guy. She she notices a man who's in need and takes care of his needs. And he she cares about Wild Bill Hickok. She cares about Sophia. So there's clearly a, a decent person in there, but she's so horribly twisted by something. And super defensive. Yeah. It's like she hurts people before they can hurt her. Not physically, just she reacts with with harsh language and, and aggressive Jesus behavior Christ. before Did anyone can yourself? can say anything bad about her. I take it you've been out on a hoot. I've been drunk a while, correct? What the fuck is that to you? How do you feel? What's that supposed to mean? How do you feel? Why? I take it that you're feeling well. Am I wrong? No, you're not fucking wrong. I wanted to fucking. I will lay you out as soon as look at you. I'm heading for the jam. Hooray for you. I've been letting it go. But if the idea is for you to drink more and more till I say something, I am hereby officially saying I wish you would stop fucking drinking. I have no fucking ideas as far as you saying what a fucking thing about anything I do or don't. You're one sick fucking customer. I apologize. Don't apologize to me. I don't even fucking know you. You want a drink of whiskey? I apologize. Yeah, accept it. Open your yap. I apologize. Maybe rather have some more. I'll go get some from the creek. But if you don't stop apologizing, I'm not gonna give you a goddamn draft. Alright, mister? I'm coming back with some more. I apologize. Shut the fuck up! 
Charlie Otter is another person she crosses paths with a lot, um, turns, turns up repeatedly in Deadwood, compatriot of uh, Bill Hickok. Probably didn't get the best image portrayal to begin with. I believe he actually cacks his pants accidentally at one point. Yeah. Um, but in, in, in real life, he was uh, much more well-groomed and uh, more of a dandy type, but uh, and and wasn't very comfortable in cities. Here, he's actually, he's, he's almost dressed like a hobo half the time. Yeah, they, that's another odd one um, I mentioned earlier. They cast him a lot older and, and changed his appearance completely. Yeah, because you're right. He apparently he would never, you know, he wouldn't travel anywhere without a mirror, and yeah, um, used to spend like an hour every morning getting himself primmed and preened, and yeah. I can see them going to the town with that kind of character, definitely. But yeah. you'd, you'd have no sympathy for him to begin with. No, I, I think um, again, jumping ahead to later seasons, the character that Brian Cox plays, the the showman the theatre guy, yeah. the guy I think he's probably more like what Charlie Utter was but yeah. he he was obviously a businessman I mean it was his wagon train business that, that brought them to Deadwood originally anyway and then obviously he sets up his his uh, extends his wagon train business to be a you know a sort of um Delivery company, I guess that's what he effectively is. Yeah, and and again, that's all that was to be factually true. I was reading about him a few weeks ago, actually. Um, I was watching Deadwoods, and he had a really fascinating life in that he ended up all over the place. I think he actually died in South America somewhere. You know, he was a real sort of serial entrepreneur. He just went always went where the where the frontier was, and as the frontier left, you know, the U.S. and moved down into sort of the Central America, Central and Southern America, that's where he ended up. He had long, flowing blonde hair and a moustache, perfectly groomed, hand-tailored, fringed buckskins, fine linen shirts, beaded moccasins, and a large silver belt buckle, and carried a pair of gold, silver, and pearl ornamental pistols. He would allow nobody into his tent, even Hickok, on pain of being shot. In his tent, he slept... That would have been a great character! Yeah. He'd have been like, what is going on with this guy? But like, clearly, to begin with, they, they wanted a, a guy who, who had a lot of humility, almost too much. So they they completely change his character around. Yeah, he always sounds a bit like Doc Holliday. Yeah, I was a little worried about comparisons to him. Maybe so. I I, I do I do still like uh, Valcom's performance in Tombstone. But, uh, yeah, it's one of his few good ones. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be your Huckleberry. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's Charlie Adder, and, and uh, he seems to be almost like uh, an echo of uh, Hickok's um, influence, like. Hickok dies while he's not in town, and then when he comes back, he's bewildered for the rest of the series and kind of needs to be sh- given a place and a, and a purpose. And Seth ends up doing that in, with him in the, uh, the next series. Deputizes him. Absolutely. May well be my favourite character in the entire series, even over Al Swearingen. And his performance by uh, Brad Dourif, Wormtongue in the uh, Lord of the Rings films, it, it rivals Ian McShane, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of intensity and giving himself to the role and just really committing to it. The point where he's praying to God, 
Brad Dourif is a method actor, so you can see in his eyes he is throwing himself into everything. There are points where he could just sit down and be facetious with his charges, his the people he's looking after, but he's so serious and like, I am trying to get across to you, if you wear this leg brace and it contributes to a lack of mobility that will last, it is not worth it. It's, again, that's I, I can't actually get the exact words in he, there. He goes on about the Hippocratic Oath quite a bit, yeah. well, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. He's, there's just he so much intensity. And he is, he is one of the most utterly good people in Deadwood. As evil as Psy is, he is good. And yet he's, you know, scruffy and disheveled and, you know, doesn't sleep properly and apparently drinks at night. So just as almost as consumed as this place. But he's one of those pinpricks of light that I mentioned earlier that you you relish in being in the show because he keeps certain amount of people in check. Who's sick? What's he doing making you walk to tell me? I came here on my own, Doc. I got something I want to show you. It's a book. Oh, no, I don't read goddamn books on the Civil War. Look! I don't need to look. I was goddamn there. But it'll help me walk better. Okay, you're referring to the brace on his leg. Yes. For your information, Jewel, that boy in the drawing was goddamn able-bodied before he got his leg shot up, not born with difficulties and hardships that got no cure and took from you the coordination a brace like that require. I was just looking at the picture, and dragging my leg really makes Al crazy. Fuck Al. Everybody's got limits. You dragging your leg is yours. I'm sorry. What do you apologize for? Don't don't apologize to me. Let me, let me hold on to this for a while. Thank you. And they need him as well. Being a doctor, he can order them around. He can say, right, Al, swear engine, this is how it is. I am moving this fella into your saloon. And that's how it's going to be. You're not going to complain. Because he's their doctor. He strikes me as there's almost a wise man aspect to him. The way he plays his role within the camp, it goes beyond just the dispensing of, of medicines. Um there's certain situations that arise that he seems to know more about than anyone else. And, and a lot of it is implied that, you know, because he's been through the, uh, the Civil War um, and seen more, basically more horror than they could even dream of at this stage. I think he suggested he was a surgeon. So, yeah. Hence the Because he, he makes mention of that a, a few times. I in one of the later seasons, he mentions it that he's done an operation a couple of times before. That's right. Well, one of the things I picked up on was that whenever he's dealing with somebody who has a particularly serious condition or complaint, you have a look and see how often he puts euthanasia front and centre as this is one of your options. It's almost like he's been, he has a lot of experience of people who, who 
basically desperately needed to be put out of their misery but were terrified to ask for it. Mm. Um, and it's not as if he's saying to them, like, you know, it's not a case of I can't be bothered to, to try and heal you or there's nothing I can do for you or anything like that. It's just, it's there, it's an option, don't feel afraid to ask, I will do it. It's the concept of inflicting further pain on mm. somebody that I think he's afraid of because he's seen so much of it. I mean, he went through the Civil War, and I can imagine the kind of injuries he had to deal with mm. as a doctor during that period. Uh, you know, the, the scene that uh, Alex was talking about where he's talking to God, he starts, you know, quoting the soldiers that he was treating, and that must have been absolutely traumatic for him um just uh, to go off uh, a little bit um from what we're talking about about this character i just think it's interesting that um you compare him to seth bullock because i think both seth bullock and the doctor have a strong moral compass but i think the doctor has a more mature outlook on the corruption he's dealing with. I think the Doctor is trying to influence the camp rather than uh, face things head on. Seth is very much a person who, if he sees a bully, if he sees wrongdoing, he's going to punch it in the face until it stops moving. <laughs> Literally in some <laughs> where, where, is, Which he actively does at one point. Which, whereas the Doctor tries his best to not be directly involved in the uh, shady activities that Al uh, engages in, but instead tries to make a better situation of um, what's going on in the camp. So he's not going to help Al, you know, kill anybody, but he is going to make sure all of his prostitutes are healthy and mm. well cared for. He's being the best man he can in a world where it would be easier to be corrupt. If I was a more adaptable prime or one of your regular petitioners, I suspect I wouldn't feel this pain. I guess I, I'd have a wad of cartilage covering the patella, protecting me from this, this discomfort. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God, take that minister. What conceivable godly uses his protracted suffering to you? What conceivable godly use? What conceivable godly use was the screaming of all those men? Did you, did you need to hear their death agonies to know your, your, your omnipotence? Mom! Mother, find my arm! Mommy! 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 They... They shot my leg off! It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. Admitting my understanding's imperfection. Trusting that you have a purpose. Praying that you consider it served. I beg you to relent. Thy will be done. Amen. Another major character. Uh, another one that's actually um, 
created for the show and wasn't actually a real life figure, Alma Garrett, played by Molly Parker, the um, the widow. Very, very early on in the uh, series, her uh, ponce of a husband comes a cropper on a cliff with a certain stabby Dan. And um, <laughs> they correctly use the word dude to describe her as well, which yes. I did appreciate. What does dude, dude imply in this context? Well, dude, if, uh, in fact, there's a... Uh, no. Is it used correctly in all the words? The word may derived from the Scottish term for clothes, duddies. The term dude was first used in print in 1876 in Putnam's magazine to mock how a woman was dressed as a dude. As a man, yeah. Hold on, let me find you the film. Dude was a new word. Because it has relevance to Deadwood as well. An extremely well-dressed male, a man who said particular... Yeah. Pay particular importance to how he appeared. So, kind of Charlie Utter, then, in real life. I think possibly the reason why they changed Charlie Utter's character is because of Alma's husband. Mm. It would be a bit of a ask having two characters who are essentially exactly the same. So, um, One of and whom also, you're supposed to mock and the other of whom you're not. Yeah, yeah. And also I think it, I think it sends a very clear message having a character like that die very early on in the series. It's like, there's no room for this kind of attitude, this kind of person in the dark and dirty world of Deadwood. If you look at the fact that uh, Brom has basically bought himself an entirely new outfit to go prospecting in. Yeah. And a new hat and a new um, sieve and all of his stuff is incredibly <laughs> new. And then he this comes across... This is my prospecting sieve. Well, indeed. And then, um, you know, he's up against somebody like Ellsworth who appears to be wearing rags he found on the bottom of the stream. <laughs> the hats in this show very specifically are very carefully chosen by wardrobe to sum up the character in a single hat if you just saw photographic stills of the hats especially after you've seen the first series you could probably tell exactly who who each hat belongs to and um as you say his hat is brand new without a speck on it which looks ridiculous in deadwood they make a play on um, Bullock always picking his hat up. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in virtually every scene, whenever he's about to go do something, the first thing he does is grab his hat. It's it's like a little motif they use throughout the throughout all three seasons. The hat maketh the man. Do you know what that yeah. really reminded me of? Actually, that's um, Granny yeah, Weatherwax. <laughs> yeah, the hat that. is what makes the witch. How would they know you were a witch if you weren't wearing the hat? Bullock yeah. always has this sheriff's hat on. Right. Or Marshall's just, hat. Just to tie this all together, uh, the point I was going to make is there's a, a John Wayne called Rio Bravo, okay, and um, in that there's a character called The Dude, who's played by Dean Martin, who's basically the deputy. The now, dude. the reason I was going to mention it is, first of all, the word dude is used correctly. As, as we talked about, which is, you know, describes somebody who's a, who's a well-dressed dandy, basically. Uh, whereas today we think of the do, we think of Jeff Bridges and, and pissing <laughs> on mats. It's a rug, man. It really tied the room together. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, the reason why I'm saying there's, there's, that's a good link is that the way that Seth Bullock plays the, his character is basically the, exactly the same character that John Wayne plays in Rio Bravo, which is this no-nonsense take no prisoners, do what I feel like sheriff. Um, if you've not seen, you know, if you've dismissed John Wayne films, you, you have to watch Rio Bravo for, for his performance as this kind of, you know, ruthless, no-nonsense sheriff. It's fantastic. And basically, whenever you see 
Timothy Oliphant playing Seth Bullock, he, I, for me, he's dialing in that performance. That seems to be, you know, what, you know, what he's, what he's going for anyway, as someone who, you know, is a fan of the genre. But, uh, that, that's the link anyway. I was going <laughs> to, tenuous link I wanted to make. These days, dude is generally used informally to address someone, as in, dude, I'm glad you finally called, or refer to another person. That dude is stealing my car. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered when that was going to. Yeah. <clears throat> but okay. I, yeah. Speak, speaking of the Garrets, though, if I have one thing I don't really, or if there's a character that I don't really buy into or believe in all of Deadwood, it's Alma Garrett. Which is a problem. Really? Fictional. Yeah. I find her performance to be mildly irritating to poor. I mean, she, all she seems to, well, her, she, she ranges from doing the quivery lip staring into the distance business, um, to the sort of, you know, sort of swaying all over the place. Well, she is laudanum. I oh, no, 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 but even later on, when she's off the laudanum, you know, she does weakness and she does, she does the kind of sort of hoity intellectual from New York, you know, I'm better than you thing. And then she does, when she does weakness, she just does this bottom lip wobbling <laughs> patheticness, which it just really grates on me, really irritates me. Now, I'm sure that's, you know, it's intentional, but it, it I just don't buy it. It just doesn't seem right. She wouldn't have lasted five minutes in this, in this town, even when she's got all that money. Uh, after you know the claim turns out to be good, mm. she just she just doesn't seem to have. She doesn't feel like an authentic character to me. She's just been run out of town within a, within a few days, you know, or, or bumped off. Um, she has no real power. I think. Well, I do get what you're uh, saying, but she isn't stupid. I do think there is an element of her being a fish out of water. This she's the most. Um, alien um character in this town um but unlike her husband i think she does have a sense of what's going on and she does um appreciate the uh, power that al swearingen wields unlike her husband who kind of just dismisses him as oh he's just a common thief i can deal with him and quickly finds out that he shouldn't have uh uh, underestimated Al Swearingen. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think there are enough characters supporting her cause that I do understand how a character like her could survive. I mean, she's got Seth Bullock by her side, and Seth Bullock is, uh, you know, <laughs> he's pretty hard to contend with. I, I think even, you know, even Al Swearingen, the most powerful person in the town, uh, is a tad afraid of uh, Seth Bullock. I do like the way that she's constantly told, advised, threatened, cajoled, bribed to go back to New York. But she doesn't. I think that defines her character, that she has gone, you know what, there is actually nothing left for me back there. I would rather have the challenge of having to try and make a go of it here than just slink back and be absorbed into that world. She clearly is not happy with where she came from. Mrs. Garrett, what male would not trade our small superiority of intellect to possess that gift of intuition so bountifully bestowed on the lesser sex? Mr. Farnham, your meaning is beyond me. I imagine you, madam, awakening the other morning 
suddenly and for no earthly reason, convinced the camp was at peril. My goal should be spirited to Denver. I imagine you thinking, maybe as you brushed your hair and without worrying the conviction or studying upon it, sending the gold away. Because the camp's at peril. Yes, madam, yes, peril. Worse than peril. Perhaps you should sell. Mrs. Garrett, had I your intuition, would I not have done? I'll buy it. Aren't you wonderful and kind and intuitive and generous? No, I couldn't burden you, nor impose upon your generosity, tremendously wealthy as you are. Name your price, Mr. Farnham. We'll close the transaction now. Now you unsettle and trifle with me and make me nervous and uncertain. How do you males put it? Shit or get off the chamber pot? Oh, Mrs. Garrett. Shit indeed. Oh, dear. Unless, Mr. Farnham. Unless what, madam? Do you reconsider? No. No. I understand. It's your sexist prerogative. Unless, I meant to say, you're lying about the camp's peril. Lying? I? But why would you do that? Exactly. You will make a price for me, then. Let me uh, consider, Mrs. Garrett. Don't, Mr. Farnham. Trust your instincts. I'll have you an address in no time. I said, you know, I'm being harsh because I still think she's central to the to the whole story, you know, and and the claim that she has in this was a real claim, and you know it, that gold mine that uh, in theory was hers in this that she then sold that lasted until 1992, so it was almost you know over a hundred years worth of gold came out of that Jesus particular claim. So, so it was apparently it was the biggest, possibly the biggest claim ever in the U.S. So it was huge, and yet so it she doesn't become another San Francisco. Well, that was apparently it was. Although there was a lot of gold, it was all poor quality. So you had to take a lot of the quartz out with it. So gotcha. you, it, it required a lot more, you know, sort of uh, mining and refining. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think some of the other gold rushes, it was like you know, the the gold was basically lying on the surface, and it was just a case of collecting it all up. I do but, like the way uh, that she interacts with her her father, though Otis. Yes, yeah, and he he's another one. He, you know, basically once she's once it's established that she's sitting on top of this this endless fortune of money, you then start to see all these other people try to get it off of her, and I think that's where her character does does do well. Like you're saying, she's constantly being cajoled and manipulated and advised, and she's just very stubborn and says no to all of it. Mm. She's going to do her own thing, but that that independence has been given to her by by that money. I don't think you know that character per se would have that strength of will were it not for the fact that she's got that money backing her up. Of course not. She's on the fence about uh, selling it back to Al, whether it's got money or not, um, you know, not long after her husband dies. I don't feel we've really touched on Seth that much. Go for it. Talk about Seth, because yeah, he's uh, enough of a significant character to at least get two chats. Um, Seth Bullock is an incredibly honourable um, person with his moral compass pointing in the right direction, but he is emotionally unstable. He has anger issues that are just 
beyond um, uncontrollable. It, it, it doesn't take much at all to make him you know, furious, not just a little bit annoyed, like Fighting fiery that. rage. And uh, it's I, I think it's important that he has Soul Star as his friend because Soul Star is almost the complete opposite. Faced with aggression, he is calm and collected and controlled. And I think um, Bullock He's... recognizes that he needs that presence in his life because otherwise, I think he'd end up destroying himself with his anger. I got a feeling if you were in Deadwood, Josh, you'd be Soul Star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I quite something we haven't mentioned. You know, I think his portrayal is, is is really good and and quite uh, fascinating. Is Dan? Yeah, Dan, Dan Doherty. Yeah. Yeah, he's he Dan is, the stab man. Dan the stab man. Yeah, Dan I mean, the initially man from Dagenham. He just yeah, he just gives gives the impression of just being the dude with uh, the dude again. The thug. The, dude, the, the thug. Yeah, the man with the knife. He does Al's dirty work, but it's quite clear as the series progresses and and you know and as the whole show progresses, really, that there's a lot more to him than that. And that, uh, you know, his relationship with uh, Al is very, very tight. You know, they they really do look out for each other. And he would basically do anything for him, bar murdering a child. That he's always looking out for, you know, Al's interest. But also, he, he also seems to have a sort of hidden moral compass that only occasionally surfaces. He has his limits, which I think early on when he's sent after Sophia... Mm. And uh, he gets that speech from Cochrane mm. and sort of realises that if he continues along the line he's on, he will overstep a mark. I think it would be easy to um, pigeonhole him as the brawn in Al's operation, but he is a smart character. I, I don't mean in terms of, um, like, the way Al is, where he's thinking up strategies and trying to outmaneuver people in the long term, but he does have his wits about him. He does consider things, like for instance, um, with the uh, gold claim. Uh, he, when he murdered um, Alma's husband and discovered that actually the claim was rich with gold, he went straight to Al to, uh, you know, talk about it instead of trying to hide it and claim it for himself because he realised he was out of his debt but being smart enough to recognise that I think says something also he he may not have Al's business sense but he's the person Al rolls his eyes at when somebody else is acting like an idiot yeah yeah he's very observant uh, Dan it's, it's not it's not that he's intellectually smart but he sees things going on he reads, he reads people like yeah. he reads people he spots the two con merchants pretty quick before you know the reveal that they are that he's almost stabs a guy over her he does but he gets taken in by her to start with he he Mm. gets taken in by her but he's very suspicious of the boy yeah you know he's 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 always watching him if you notice um okay another incredible performance who when you first see it you think oh here we go right the nutter who's also a priest uh reverend henry weston smith played by uh, ray mckinnon um he has this really uncomfortable air about him where he smiles when he's delivering uh really serious news and you can tell that he makes people around him feel a little bit uneasy and also since he's in touch with the good lord who at that time in you know by and large across america it was still 
God was still massive business, and uh, even though they were doing things that by all rights should get them sent straight to the fiery pit, there had to be a certain amount of um, respect for, um, for for the the church. Even though he, it seems like he really shouldn't be in Deadwood, and the actual real life reverend died in a completely different way. He was uh, apparently murdered, shot through the heart on his way. Um, walking away from town to somewhere else and is found by the side of the road. And there were suppositions. It was blamed on uh, savages. And I think that's where they actually adapted that, the road agents uh, storyline mm-hmm. uh, earlier. But it just, it seems like um, there was something afoot and that he was, well, that was it. The implication appeared to be that him preaching outside the various saloons put people off their sinful business. So it was bad for business for at least Cy Tolliver, who would be uh, Tom Miller, and Al Swearingen. They make that a, a, a case in point with Al being angry at the Reverend, but they make it so much more complex than that, than he just murders him because he's uh, bad for business. He's suffering from a brain tumour to the the folks at home, and he's... I mean, I've got something, this is quite, um, this was quite uh, moving for me, because my father-in-law actually died of a brain tumour less than a year ago. Sorry, Gary. So, um, his portrayal, I have to say, is hauntingly accurate. God, Um, I'm sorry. And, uh, I... Obviously, I was watching it with my wife, and I kept saying to her, "Do you want me to forward wind it? Do you want me to forward wind it on some of those, you know, key scenes where he's, he's, you can tell that he's really suffering?" And she was, she was okay with it actually. Obviously, because, you know, we've seen, we've seen the the impact that that's that uh, dreadful disease can have. Yeah. Um, and I thought the fact that, um, you know, the way in which I think what you're going to talk about is the way in which Al basically ends his life to end his suffering with. Presumably, uh, the the doc's uh, blessing because I think the doc almost sort of manipulates Al into it, taking yeah, yeah orchestrates oh, yes. him into taking him in, knowing full well that that's what Al would probably do. Um, is 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 something which um, you know I think us as a family also you know at, at certain points wished would happen. You know you kind of faced with that and you think I just wish someone would put him out of his misery. You know let it let it end. Because it is, it is so horrible. But uh, yeah, it was. Um, I thought it was a fantastic performance. Yeah. And they were quite interesting that they they brought in the, the they they kind of suggested that his his faith may have come from his disease, and then he loses his faith almost through his disease. You know, he says he can no longer hear the Lord anymore and things like that. You know. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's um, that's quite common um, with people who are suffering from this that they will. They will, they will, they will have quite severe mood swings, and will eat, sometimes it's been known for people to completely change character. You know, they, 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 they almost become a completely different individual. So it's not unusual for that to happen. So it was, uh, it was superbly done. I thought it was. Uh, I was a bit worried when it, when that plotline first started. I thought, oh god, I'm not sure I'll be able to watch this. But it was very sensitively done. I thought, and very well done. Mm. Like I said, to begin with, you're, uh, you kind of groan because he sort of turns up and starts sort of pushing certain ideologies on people. And they seem to kind of, not not impolitely, but sort of try and get away from him as much as possible. But then as he is in it more, it's not so much that he grows on you. You just start to see how small his world has become 
and how this is really is the only thing he can do. And he, he wants to help people. He's just becoming less and less capable of helping even himself. When it takes Jane to give him advice to go home and sleep. Yes. Yeah, because uh, you feel that, um, particularly with the Doctor, that he almost loses patience with him because he tries to get him to to rest up and to, you know, take his time and, and, and you know, look after himself really, knowing full well that what he's got is terminal. But, of course, he completely ignores that and hovers around the plague tent and, you know, persists in uh, going into the gym to listen to music, much to the irritation of Al and the... Uh, and uh, and Dan, you know, so yeah, it's yeah. Is it interesting that they 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 put that in there and they that you know they they put uh you know what essentially is a bit of melodrama in there to to, to sort of I don't know make make the series feel feel more real if you like. It's not yeah. you know not everyone was going to die by being stabbed or shot or drowned. That people were going to die from other things as well. And uh, I thought that was extremely well done. I, I think the most interesting thing about his arc is the way the possibly, you know, you could describe more important characters react to him. You know, Jane is completely blunt, as she is with everyone. Yeah. Whereas Al is kind of trying to hide the fact how emotionally this affects him. Like, he's trying to play it off as if, you know, like he does everything, like it doesn't phase him, but clearly the priest is, you know affects him emotionally and i think they do in fact reference the fact that his brother suffered uh something similar so it i think a lot and when he kills um the priest he actually says you can go now brother um yes it's yeah so i i think it's suggesting that um it's not just that he feels the priest's pain it's that it's reminding him of a traumatic period in his life mm. reverend smith Evening, sir. Evening, Reverend. I watched goods in the tent. This uh, this structure replaced while Messrs. Bullock and Star first took in the camp. You sure did. What can we do for you, Reverend? I'm in a quandary, gentlemen. Are you Mrs. Bullock and Star? In the flesh. You are the absolute images of them, gentlemen. But what makes me afraid is I do not recognize you as my friends. And naturally, I am afraid. What are you afraid of, sir? I don't know what's happening to me. I have various ailments, and I suppose this is a further ailment, but of what sort, I don't know. And I'm afraid if you are devils, which which I don't believe you are, because you are the kindest men of, of all in the camp to me. But if you were devils, I suppose that that would be the, the, the type of shape you would take. And, and if you are not devils, I... Then I am... I am simply losing my mind. And with my other ailments, I am concerned and afraid. 
All right, Reverend. We're the people you met the night you watched our goods. I'm from Etobicoke, Ontario. I'm from Vienna, Austria. Wonderful. You're here with friends. Yes, yes, I feel that now. And I have various ailments of which we all suffer. And next morning often finds us feeling better. Yes. In any case, part of God's plan. May we walk you back to your tent, sir? An evening stroll with friends. I would so enjoy that. Let's go then. Another uh, twisted character who uh, actually I think kind of needs a little bit of extra um, focus. Uh, Jack McCall, played by Garrett De La Hunt, who actually turns up later in a completely different role. He does. Yeah. I was like, I swear it's that same guy. Yeah. Uh, this is the the man who shoots uh, Bill Hickok, and he starts off as this you know wreck of a man, drunken and overly um, overly gloating when he wins at poker and rubbing it in Hickok's face until he's abused and cast away from the table. And just just watching him, you're thinking something terrible is going to happen with this. Something terrible. If you don't know the history, it is carefully flagged for you. Right. When Hickok gives him a chip and says, go get yourself some breakfast, you need look like you need a meal, that was the thing that the real-life uh, McCall said was enough of an insult to um, send him over the edge. I love the fact that in the trial, the prosecution lawyer says, you know, in a fit of, of, of white-hot rage, you then spent seven hours away from the table and then came back and shot him in the back. And he also pins it on, oh, yeah, uh, Hickok killed my brother. Which was, you know, fed to him by who actually feeds him that? Was it Swearingen? It's his no, lawyer. It's the, de- the defence lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. God damn lawyer. You don't actually get to see him get hanged, do you? No. No. You just hear um, uh, Charlie Utter and um, Bullock uh, reference it, but you don't actually see it. Happens in 1877, apparently. So he, he spent some time in jail in between times. This was the event that put Deadwood on the map, as we mentioned earlier. And so he is absolutely instrumental to their history. He's got this suit on, on the day he kills um, Wild Bill. And it's too new. And in fact, um, in fact, someone pulls the label out of the suit to show just how inept he is. He's gone off with his winnings, bought himself a suit. He's still wearing the same filthy hat. He still has a filthy face. He's just totally out of his depth here and he's, an, he's a catastrophe waiting to happen I mean there, it, it's almost a reference to that famous quote um, just because you shot Jesse James does not make you Jesse James it doesn't take somebody the equal of Hickok. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok to kill him yeah. this is because, not conquers yeah yeah like a gun it does take skill to wield a gun, but it's easy to kill a man with a gun. Mm. And anybody can kill anybody with a gun. And it doesn't matter if you are Wild Bill Hickok, you can still die at the hands of a coward and a fool. Mm. 
One of the uh, slightly more traumatic deaths in it happens to an unnamed character, uh, and it's 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 motivated by Jack McCall. Uh, it's when Seth has to fight the Sioux warrior uh, on his way to apprehend McCall. It's, it's a very, just a very sudden moment of violence, and he's being taunted uh, by the man above him, and then it just it turns into a, a tussle, which ends up with him smashing the, the the guy's head in with a rock. And this is a death that really affects Bullock. He interprets from what was going on that there was a, a, a matter of honour in it, that this warrior could have killed him while he was on the floor at any time, but had to wait until he got up to actually uh, engage him in combat. I think Charlie implies when he talks to him about it that um, that's uh, sacred ground for the Sioux. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that... Seth had stumbled onto it by accident, but because he'd set foot on it, that was why he was attacked. There are very few, if any, Native American characters, certainly not ones with speaking roles. There's a lot of talk of dirt worshippers in this. Ultimately, um, the Deadwood camp had moved in on Sioux territory. They were in the midst of a, of a, a nationwide war with a hot, an entire people who were dying out. But it's it's not something that, that plays heavily in there because people just saw them as savages and never actually came to terms or came to grips with that culture. It was just the other. It was just the outside. A wagon train that gets robbed and uh, massacred at the beginning, they're so easily able to pin that on savages. And people just buy that as a story because it's, a, it's a, a believable enough considering the bloodshed that was happening every day. But they handle each and every death in the actual show with carefully measured levels of drama. They don't, they never glamorize it. It's always ugly and horrible. And in almost every single case, shocking. It's never oversimplified as well. If somebody gets shot with a very small gun and the bullet's gonna take hours and hours to kill them, then that's what happens. If, you know, somebody gets a, I mean, one of the most distressing um, deaths that I found was um, Flora's. Yeah. Um, and the way that she basically just gets beaten so hard that her skull cracks and they don't... She's become brain damaged at that point. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, and, yeah, so I actually gloats over that particular fact. Yeah. yeah. They're unflinching in this. It Quite apart from glorifying violence, it actually makes it the kind of cold, ugly situation that would make a person never want to engage in it at all. Mm. It's, I suppose every, it's the opposite of Grand Theft Auto. Every act of sorts. violence in this kind of makes you feel a little bit sick. And yeah. it's, it's almost, um, you know, the opposite of the, the sort of Hollywood bullet flies off camera, body falls over possible slight pool of blood if it's an 18 the end mm. or you know gore fest to make the teenagers snigger indeed and then by and large and this is a nice segue by and large most of the people killed especially by Al in the town end up being fed to the pigs yeah <laughs> the pigs of Mr. Wu the only creatures in the entire town that ever get a decent meal Yeah, uh, Mr. Wu doesn't really feature much in Season 1, but he does feature a lot in Season 2. Kind of an important sideline character to Deadwood. He ultimately represents a huge amount of um, Chinese settlers, settlers, slaves, let's face it, in a lot of cases, in America. And they're referred to as celestials in a slang term by, uh, by Al. Why is that, Sharon? It's like Oriental. It's to do with coming from the East. Gotcha. 
Uh, Wu can only communicate in a few words and mimes and occasionally pictures. It's most often he uses the term cocksucker. He seems to be angry all the time. And he, he you be? Yeah, uh, there's there's very little for him to be um, not angry about. But when you actually see the business that he's putting through and, and the, the, the connections that he's got, this is effectively the early triads. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a sense that um, Wu is the owl within his own community. Yeah. And I think a lot of the frustration that Wu gets is that back home, he was considered in the same light as Al would have been, here, uh, would be here. But here, he has to walk in through the back door, bow to all these people. Dan, or no, it's the imbecile who Dan um, berates all the time, tells Wu off for coming yeah. in the front door. And Wu's smarter than him. He may not be able to uh, communicate with these people, mm. but he is smarter than some of the people that Al has in his employ. But he has he's considered by this society to be lower than them. Yeah. Um, which is a great injustice. I, I mean, back in that time... Yeah, pimps and, and crime bosses should be all afforded the same respect. <laughs> but, no matter what their culture. It's it's kind of weird as a modern uh, audience looking at this because, um, you know, racism is such... Uh, racism, I think, by and large, I know there are still, you know, communities out there like the Westboro Baptist Church and so, so forth who hold bigoted views, but largely I think re- racism is considered evil. But back in this time period, it's almost odd if you aren't racist mm. and so you have to kind of remove that as a negative quality for a character to have when you're looking at it at this time period um, because almost everyone is um Al is you know he's bigoted as um, I said earlier Jewel suddenly comes up with a cracker in a later series yeah it's it's kind of odd it Especially because so many of the characters who display this kind of behaviour are intelligent. It's not the dumb hicks who are being racist, although there is an example of that later on in later seasons. Mm. It is intelligent people, and it's kind of shocking. They're very careful to make sure that certain hero characters, like Bullock, is remarkably modern in his um, conduct. Star never puts a foot out of line, being someone who's been exposed to a huge amount of prejudice himself. I think a lot of it comes down to empathy. It's, It's if in your life you've only known one thing, although it's... It's very easy to say with a modern eye where we have uh, information and, um, you know, media that will show us many, many different people's perspectives to to sort of put ourselves in the position of of people who just didn't have that at all. And, I mean, I I actually find the way the the Chinese um, people in the camp are treated really, really interesting because they're horrendous to them. Most of the people in the camp are absolutely horrendous to the, the Chinese folk and the way they, they have to live and the contempt with which they're treated is absolutely appalling. But that's still better than the attitude that they have towards the Native Americans, which is practically not to acknowledge them as people at all. Mm. Just put out prices on their heads and uh, you know, hope that there's many turn up dead as possible. Yeah. They are, they are just there to have their land grabbed from them. 
away, Will. Switch it. No. Switching. Well, it ain't gonna happen. Switching. No, Woo. He's fucked up. Now I can't talk to you right now, and I can't understand you. So you go the fuck back to Chink Alley. And you don't need more. Start drawing air to talk gibberish to me. Cocksucker. Oh, for Christ's sake. Cocksucker. It's wasted on me, Woo. Cocksucker. Cocksucker. I I I don't get it, Woo. I am not as smart as Al. And there's too much on our fucking plate right now to deal with it. Cocksucker! Cocksucker! San Francisco! Jesus fucking Christ. All right, there's a, there's an invisible cocksucker next to you, and he's from San Francisco. Who? Oh, cocksucker! San Francisco cocksucker! I'm going to... You want me to tell Al that there's a cocksucker? He looks like... He looks like you, and he's from San Francisco... And he's got your dander. I'm going up now. I'll go tell him. Tell him what? God only knows. Why don't you learn to talk American? Save us all a lot of fucking trouble. Oh, no, Englishy. Bakwilo. Switching. Jeffrey Jones from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off plays A.W. Merrick, who I mentioned earlier, is a total windbag. The editor of the Deadwood Pioneer never says ten words when he could say a hundred. Tends to, uh, to sort of... Um, overcomplicate things and leave most of the other characters around him uh, edging towards the door and, and wishing he'd just shut up. Uh, perfect example of uh, the the early beginnings of the press making, you know, mountains out of molehills. Although I do find his references to his... Um his newspaper quite amusing when it's it becomes apparent that at least for the first uh, major part of the series he's got no news to report it's an advertising rag yeah (laughs) that's all it is he's easily manipulated by most of the other key people in the town as well Mm. you know to do their bidding ends up becoming the caught in the middle of it several times throughout um throughout the three seasons for that very reason we haven't mentioned the title sequence yet have we no. Maybe, yeah. maybe the best title sequence I've ever seen in terms <laughs> of immediately grabbing you and showing you in visuals and music what you're about to see. It's got this dirty, terrible beauty to it. You know, there's this bit where a uh, prospector takes a small nugget of gold in slow motion out of a, a pan and bites into it with this kind of like, the side of his head is like a horse's skull and then inspects it and throughout the sequence a uncaged horse is just charging around in the background running through st- streams and there's sort of you know glittering shots of whiskey and, and whores and tin bathtubs but it's done so close up that you can almost smell it and there's this sort of seductive it's kind of almost it's beckoning but also warning at the same time there is a whining intensity to it that uh, is extremely evocative for me that that whole feeling of um what you said about being drawn into the visuals Mm. it's it's almost sort of setting up this idea of life that you cannot get away from there is no sanitizing in this place there is no uh whitewashing of anything it's it's all there you can't get away from it It's, it's very cinematic and it's also other, you know, as opposed to the actual show itself, it has a lot of motion. If you think most of the show is really just, it's fairly static. It's people in, in buildings or on the street conversing and 
uh, and you know it's very sort of dialogue rich and quite plot heavy whereas the actual intro gives you this sense of I, I don't know this sense of flow of of almost like controlled chaos you know this wild horse running amok yeah. amongst all these other things that are going on there is of course the the sense that because this is a, a new land for the these settlers that everyone is an immigrant and that everyone has come here seeking gold seeking a possible way forwards and they they want to annex deadwood they want it to be a separate part they don't want anyone coming in and telling them what to do this <laughs> comes back to control but when they aren't controlled and they're separate from any kind of government. No one's keeping order. So it's chaos and everyone's stabbing and shooting everyone. So they end up having to set up their own kind of um, uh, well, governing body. Yeah, I mean, the whole camp was created illegally anyway because it was built in Sioux territory. So in theory, yeah. they should never, shouldn't have been there in the first place because of the treaty. The reason they want to be annexed, though, um, and I think Al makes this clear a couple of times, is that all these claims that people have put down, until they are annexed by the Union and therefore their claims are legally recognised, anybody could come in and take those from them at any point yeah. and they would have no recourse to law. Mm. That's why they're looking to be um, brought under... Uh, union rule so that they can keep their land. Yeah, legitimises the camp, it turns mm. it into a town. Mm. Exactly. There's, yeah, there's a certain uneasy balance whenever Al's well basically whenever Al gets his way that, and that's possibly why you kind of end up rooting for Al because you realise it's not so much that he has everyone else's best interests at heart but as you said earlier he can see the big picture and he knows that if he's too greedy and too grasping and just goes after number one the whole thing is going to come crashing down on him and then, you know, he'll be dead and the rest of the camp's going to go to shit. He's so, a great believer in sustainability. <laughs> yeah, he's playing the long game. We haven't talked really about Trixie. And this, this all uh, relates back to control as well, again. There's a scene where, um, well, in the very first episode, Trixie, Al's number one um, prostitute, you know, runs away from him because she's um, she's sick of his um, overly aggressive control, uh, but ends up coming back to him and getting into his bed obediently. And throughout the rest of the series, there's uh, for this first season, there's a sense that he's you know holding on to her less tightly than Sai is with Joni, but there is a certain uh, relationship there that's similar. She is controlled by Al, so when she goes off with uh, Star. I mean, Al doesn't straight out go, this is forbidden, you are not to do this, but he absolutely does not give her his blessing on this and makes fun of uh, Sol. He stops that. calling her by name at that point. He, he refers to her as the other one or, the, or that yes. one. Or, yeah. And people have to keep saying to him, do you mean Trixie? Yeah. It's, it's almost it's like a crappy marriage. The, well, I was just going to say, if you look at the comparison, Trixie is essentially the closest thing Al has to a wife. Yeah. He confides in her in a way that he is unable to with anyone else. He actually tries when she goes off and starts um, you know, spending time elsewhere. He picks up another younger girl to come and sleep with him and tries to talk to her, but it's patently obvious that he doesn't get the same satisfaction in, in conversing. And Trixie um, is smart, it becomes yeah, obvious. she is. She's very smart. Um, I mean, frankly, to, to have been doing what she does as long as she has and still be alive, um, you'd have to be at least relatively... Uh, Either smart or have a certain zest for life. Indeed. Again, you, you compare that with Sai's um, relationship with Joni. He seems more like a, um, a father, father yeah. than, a, than a partner. 
Um, and I think there is some degree of acknowledgement from Al that Trixie has not a hold over him specifically or, or anything quite like that, but that he sees her as a little bit more of an equal. Yeah, he sees that she's a lot smarter than the other girls. She's, mm. and so therefore she becomes more useful to him mm. in other ways, not just being a means, you know, a means of making his pimp money, which yeah. is why he uses her initially to take care of the, the little girl and to spend time with Alma. And then, you know, he, he, you say he doesn't give, he, he doesn't give his blessing initially for her to see soul, but he realizes that that may be useful to him. Mm. And at that point, that's more useful to him than the $5 she makes, you know, every time she shags someone. So, you know, that, that relationship evolves. She almost becomes as important to him as Dan. Yeah. She is one of the characters that grows the most throughout the uh, series. She starts off at the, nearly at the bottom. Uh, she's, you know, filthy and uh, depressed and actually manages to, just in this first season, uh, clean up and actually have some influence on Alma for the, for the better. And they sort of grow from um, relating to each other. She has a fair few low points, though. Absolutely. You, you yeah. start off by thinking... Well, she attempts that suicide. Well, mm-hmm. I was just going to say... That's a pretty low the, point. The first horrendous beating that she takes, it seems like that's, that's really broken her in a way, and it takes her a long time to come back from that. Mm. But then she, she goes down even further and ends up trying to kill herself with a heroin overdose. Is it later on in the second series that you, you find out that she lost a child at some point? Seven. Seven. She has seven Sorry, abortions. yes, seven. Yeah. For her, it's statistically unlikely that it would only ever be one. True. Very true. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the, where she takes, tries to take her own life, that's where his attitude towards her changes slightly. And yeah. that's when he starts to use her for other means. So. It's also it's acknowledgement to himself that he could push her too far at this yeah. stage and has pushed her too far. Yeah. Whereas you look at how Cy reacts when um, Joni picks up the gun. Yeah. And there's that moment where you think she's going to shoot herself. It's it's a completely different attitude. There's he no, snatches it away no from her hand. I, I can't remember what he actually says, but it's something like, "You stay right here, or yeah, I will not allow you to kill yourself." Yeah. Supreme control again. Sai is a brilliant character to get you to really understand Al, in contrast, could be a lot worse. Again, it's his attitude towards people like Trixie and the way he behaves with them and the way they behave towards him um, that that give you the the feel of, of what he's like as a person. That is, to me, a sign of really high-quality writing because that's far better than a, a characterization which comes from someone having to tell you in either dialogue or, or narration or whatever, this is what this person is like. You shouldn't have to tell us what this person is like. We should be able to see it from how the people around them react to them. The music is notable. They, they don't have uh, end credits music. It's always a different uh, song. And they, they, they choose from a variety of different time periods. And it always applies in some way to the actual narrative of that one episode. It's extremely well chosen. And uh, a lot of them will, will stick with you. I'm surprised at how easy it was for me to pick this show back up again. And right now I want to go back and watch it tonight. The only negative thing I can really think of is that it's raised the bar so high that now watching other shows, I'm just like, oh, this is terrible characterization. There's nothing here. There's nothing going on. Make me care about these people, or at least compel me. It will 
crank your uh, comprehension of drama up a notch. And it's, what, it's nearly eight years old now. But it feels so fresh and it feels uh, like, you know, it's, it, it has a timeless air to it because it's a period piece. Yeah, ultimately, it's, it's also influenced my writing. Uh, my uh, book has been completely transformed from the sci-fi it was to a period piece, not just because of Deadwood, but it, it highlighted for me the importance of a setting and place. And I found that if I actually... Uh, made mine a period piece, I would have to be a lot more authentic in the language and what was going on, and I'd have to really know where places were. When you guys finally get to read my book, there are, you're definitely going to notice Deadwood influences, which can only be a good thing. So that is all from us tonight. It's likely that if you've gotten this far, you're either already familiar with the show, or you're looking to find a way to see it very soon, in which case I can only say, good choice and enjoy. I'm astonished we didn't swear more. So I'd like to thank my guests this evening. You guys have been fantastic. Uh, Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, Gary Blower of Game Burst. You're welcome. So we will see you very soon for some more Gonzo. Good night to every one of you. And I've been waiting a while to say this one. Happy trails. Standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day, when I saw that her come rolling for carry my mother away. Will a circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Undertaker, oh Undertaker, Undertaker, please drive slow, cause that lady, you are hollering, oh Lord, hate to see it go.
lonesome Lord miss my mother She was gone I had all my brothers And my sisters crying What home So sad and long Oh we let sir go Home away in the sky.